cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I uh, Bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, July 12th, 2011. Mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to a little bit of vacation time. <laughs> it's been a while since I've had a really decent, uh, well, a couple of days off for recharging the batteries. I I think that's what's going to happen next week. I'm kind of crossing my fingers. Anyway. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Well, there is no shortage of, well, crazy things being said and done in the name of God, and well, we uh, we track that all here at Fighting for the Faith, and uh, pass that along to you, kind of as a um, well, as a public service, and you know, to warn you about the deception that is out there, and to encourage you to get back into your Bible if you've uh, uh, been away from it for a while, haven't been studying it, haven't been reading it, uh, or, or uh, slipping into biblical illiteracy. Maybe there's uh, you know crust growing on the outside of your faith, things like that. We want to knock that off and uh, get back into God's Word because our enemy, the devil, never takes a break. He is a, uh, let's just say he's a, he's a, he's a workaholic, and uh, he, he seeks people whom he can devour, and that would even be you. And so uh, you and me, none of us are safe from uh, from the devil. As a result of it, we've got to, got to, got to be in the... Uh, in the Word of God and trusting and believing it, it's it's true. And you know, you want well, why should I believe it? Because Jesus did. Okay, well, what do you mean Jesus did? Jesus believed it. And the funny part is, is that uh, Jesus believed the Word of God to be the Word of God, and for the stories in the Bible to actually be historically true. Uh, when you read through the Gospels, uh, one of the things that strikes you is, is that when Jesus talks about Adam and Eve, he talks about them as if well, they existed. Uh, when Jesus talks about Cain and Abel, he talks about them as if, well, uh, historically they existed. And the story that uh, is recorded for us in the book of, Agen- of Genesis, well, that it's true. Uh, Noah in the flood, Jesus actually believed in a worldwide flood. Um, Jesus believed in creation, not evolution. Um, Jesus, 
Uh, Jesus actually believed that Jonah was in the belly of a big fish for three days. And um, and so you go, okay, well, maybe Jesus was just a product of his time. Uh, well, <clears throat> that's kind of the funny part, is, is that Jesus makes it clear that uh, the message that he preaches, he, well, he learned from his Father in heaven. And he never, ever, ever, ever once uh, attacks, demeans, deconstructs anything in God's word as if it isn't true. Instead, he always passes it off as God's word, historically true, historically accurate. Oh, and by the way, the, the God of the Bible, <laughs> yeah, the God of the Old Testament, that God, the God who said, let there be light, that God, uh, the God who uh, who brought the flood, the God who delivered Israel out of slavery from the land of Egypt the god who delivered uh Israel from the hand you know from the hands of uh, their oppressors uh, via the judges the the god of David uh, the god that David worshiped the god who descended in a cloud when Solomon built the temple the god who took uh Israel out of the land of Israel and sent them into Babylon because of their persistent idolatry and rebellion against him that god well, Jesus actually claims to be that God in human flesh, and um, he proved that he actually was who he claimed to be, that God in human flesh, by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified for our sins under Pontius Pilate. So that God, uh, that Jesus, um, he, well, he, he, um, he never once attacks, dem, de, demeans, denies, undermines, subverts uh, the Word of God. In fact, there's a whole lot of people in in the visible church who be doing a whole lot of uh, deconstructing of God's Word and uh, makes you wonder, are these people really uh, teaching me the Christian faith, or instead, are they apostles of unbelief? Yeah, see... Yeah, one of the things I've learned over the years is that uh, you know the uh, the those who don't like God's word, who attack it, who embrace doubt and things like that, they're not they're not teaching me to trust and believe the Bible. They're not t- teaching me to trust Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. Instead, they're teaching me to attack God's word and and to not believe it to make it less than what it claims to be and make it less th- less than what Jesus believed it would be and quite frankly i don't think their credentials for you know their claims uh, stack up to Jesus's credentials i mean for instance i mean liberal scholar i mean many of the liberal scholars out there they have phd's okay well it's good to go and get your doctorate uh, you know it's it's an important thing but does a 21st century phd trump um, Jesus cl- proving that he's actually the God of the universe in human flesh? Um, the answer, no. Um, so, I mean, <clears throat> you're all familiar with uh, pinochle or hearts. You know, you, know they, you, always have a, you always have a suit, you know, in the, in the deck of cards that's Trump. Well, nothing beats, you know, like the ace of Trumps. You, you, know, you, know, the, you know, so what, you know, if you have the ace card and it's a Trump card, Nothing beats it. Ain't nothing, nowhere, no how beats it. I mean, even the king in the same suit don't beat the ace. You get what I'm saying here? So the idea here is is that uh, Jesus is the uh, ace of hearts in the Trump suit in in all of the in all of the universe. And so your credentials, your skepticism, your uh, deconstructing questions and things like that, they actually don't trump Jesus's credentials. Uh, nothing trumps Jesus. And uh, if you would like to try to 
take Jesus away from that Trump position uh, where he has the ultimate say as to what our view of God's word needs to be, well, then you actually have to prove that he isn't who he claimed to be. And the only way you can do that, well, is uh, to go and dig up his bones uh, somewhere in the Judean countryside. And, well, the problem is you're not going to find them because, well, Jesus rose bodily from the grave on the third day after he was crucified. So the reason why no one's going to find his bones, because they ain't there. And, uh, yeah, so anyway, just want to get that off my chest. So uh, let's talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. And by the way, uh, there's like um, a 95% chance that I'm going to be uh, completely taking a vacation uh, next week. I, 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 you know, I take little days off here and there to recharge my batteries, but I'm going to be out of town uh, all next week. I'm going to be speaking at a conference, and I've made the executive decision rather than, you know, uh, you know, just – stack up my uh, list of things to do. I'm actually going to be out of studio and I'm going to take a few days off to recharge my battery so that when I come back the following week, I can hit the ground running and and not uh, do so exhausted. So let's uh, talk about what we're going to talk about on today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. As I was preparing for the program, one of the things I do, I regularly check my Facebook wall. And uh, one of the reasons I regularly check my Facebook wall is to see what people are saying there. And and I get a lot of really good tips for uh, radio segments off of my uh, Facebook wall. Another reason why I check my Facebook wall, well, i got to clean the uh, the clutter off of there <laughs> from the Zynga games. Uh, you know, if you've been on my Facebook wall, then you'll see that people leave me gifts from Farmville and from Cityville and from Empires and Allies and things like that. And I, I I regularly have to go onto my Facebook wall and 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 well of course receive the gift and then delete the post. You know, <laughs> yeah. So uh, the Zynga games make sure that I'm on my Facebook wall on a regular basis. So uh, anyway, um, I as I was preparing to go on the air today, good good night, uh, a gentleman uh, who's a listener and a you know friend of mine on Facebook. His name is Tim, and uh, Tim left me. A, 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 a link to a YouTube video that just absolutely had me floored. We're going to uh, take a look at that. Well, it's kind of funny. This is radio. Uh, we're going to take a listen to uh, the, the audio from that particular video. And uh, and all I can say is uh, ten, get your tinfoil pyramid hat, uh, bendy straws, and Q-tips. You will need them. Um, then we're going to do a segment uh, from the emergent church, uh, you know, Things heard at the wild goose, uh, uh, the you know the 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 wild goose conference, uh, that the the outdoor festival, wild goose festival that recently concluded. I I, I warned you all that uh, from time to time over the next few weeks, as the audio becomes available, we would be reviewing some of the things overheard and said at the uh, wild goose festival there that was put on by the postmodern liberals, aka emergence. And uh, it's I think it's important for you all to hear this stuff. One of the things that I was thinking about <clears throat> is that um, three years ago, uh, you know, three years ago, the uh, the emergent church was still engaged in flat out obfuscation. It was very difficult to get a straight answer from them as to what they believed and why they believe what they were all about. The one thing we knew uh, about them is is that they they were always busy at work deconstructing uh, Christianity. Uh, and the question was, what were they going to build? I mean, 
So they were down with meta narratives. They were down with the uh, modernism. They were down with propositional truth claims and things like that. And it makes you go, well, the Bible's full of propositional truth claims, and this was all prior to modernity. So what you guys be up to? And uh, you know, f- from the beginning, uh, my gut reaction was uh, we're dealing with a, a resurgence of liberalism, but it's it's a slightly different stripe. And uh, and of course, you know, when I would say things like that, people would get, get mad at me and write nasty comments, of, you know, on my blog and, you know, actually blogs and things like that. I was being judgmental and that I needed to give them space to to, you know, to, you know, for them to define who they are and things like that. Well, it turns out, <laughs> well, what what is the emergent church? And you know, I mean, here we are three years, you know, three, four years later. And um, the emergent church, what does it turn out to be? Just the same old liberal ghetto, but rather than modernist liberalism, we're dealing with postmodernist liberalism. I mean, that's it's it's all the same thing. I mean, I mean, they're attacking and impugning the uh, the imputed righteousness of Christ. They're attacking and impugning the 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 doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement. Uh, it, it doesn't matter if miracles really happened. Uh, it's all part of the beauty of the story. They they're they are gay affirming. And I mean, it's all the same social justice, uh, liberation theology. It's Hegelianism and irrational philosophy mixed together, and that's pretty much what it's turned out to be. And uh, as a result of it, it's it's uh, you know I think that as they've come into focus, and people have realized, oh well, there was a reason why they were attacking these doctrines is because that's they they don't believe them right. Uh, the emergent church is really uh, these guys are apostles of unbelief. They claim that they 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 are giving you a new kind of Christianity, but they're not giving you a new kind of Christianity. What they're doing is they're giving you a new kind of skepticism, a new kind of uh, a new kind of doubt, and calling it faith and trying to pass it off as Christianity. It's just a counterfeit bill, is what it is, and uh, so. But it's important now that we know what it is to kind of go back and look at what it is they're saying and review what they're saying, knowing now what they are, so that we can find out where things went wrong. What's what's you know you know what what's the deal with this new postmodern liberalism? So we can take a look at that. Um, I've got an article from uh, the Pyromaniacs blog, kind of a, um, <clears throat> a a personal testimony, if you would. Now I'm not the biggest fan of personal testimonies. Um, Especially if they're uh, recited in church. Now, there's a place for personal testimony. There truly is. I mean, if you read the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul three times in the book of Acts recounts how uh, Christ knocked him down and drug him into the kingdom. I mean, that's literally what happened with the Apostle Paul. And so on three different occasions, Paul tells the story of how he persecuted the church and how Jesus knocked him down and how Jesus gave him faith and forgiveness of his sins. And so uh, we're going to uh, uh, this is going to be an opportunity today to uh, get uh, not the apostle Paul's story of how he was drugged into the kingdom but uh, the, uh, the the story of how Phil Johnson of the Pyromaniacs blog uh, who you know uh, re- regular guest now it seems like regular guest here on uh, fighting for the faith uh, Phil Johnson he's uh, recently written a post entitled how skepticism masquerading as christianity almost cost me my soul so we're going to be taking a look at that um, you know, so so we got Phyllis Tickle, we got, uh, we got this uh, this video that you're not going to believe. I I don't even want to tell you what it's about yet. Um, and if we have time, uh, I've got uh, a couple of posts from the White Horse Inn blog. Which, by the way, the guys over the White Horse Inn blog, they're starting to publish some really good stuff. If you have an RSS reader, and uh, you you know you 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 like reading blogs, and you haven't you know a way of 
catching in the RSS feed. The stuff coming out of the White Horse Inn blog lately, I, I don't know what – something's changed there, and they've been publishing regularly, and the stuff they've been putting out, top-notch. Top, so if uh, you uh, if you have an opportunity to uh, you know uh, dial in your RSS reader, make sure to uh, subscribe to the RSS feed coming out of the White Horse Inn blog, and you can find it at www dot whitehorsein dot org and by the way we uh, on a daily basis here at Pirate Christian Radio we do play uh, uh, White Horse Inn classics I mean that's a standard thing here at uh, Fighting for the Faith and generally they uh, they're on the air starting around one o'clock ish now I say one o'clock ish because Pirate Christian Radio doesn't have exactly firm and and fast uh, times for our programming with the exception of uh, Fighting for the Faith and issues etc everything else can kind of move. Uh, you know, five or ten minutes this way or that way, depending. So, yeah, it's one of the creative ways we do <laughs> broadcasting here at Fighting for the Faith. It has to, and you know what that has to do with is the fact that uh, you know one of the things I you know we feature here at uh, Pirate Christian Radio is uh, preaching uh, you know sermons by Lutherans. And uh, um, one of the things you'll notice about Lutherans is is that uh, you know our, the Lutheran sermons. 15 to 20 minutes, but and and you know, 15 to 20, 22 minutes. I mean, a 22 minute long Lutheran sermon that's a long sermon, and uh, anyway, and so because we feature Lutheran preaching here at Fighting for the Faith, it kind of messes things up. Because when I put a Lutheran preaching program on, um, today it could be 15 minutes, tomorrow it could be 22 minutes, the next day it could be 11. Uh, as a result of it, it just messes everything up, and so. Putting together the daily programming here at Pirate Christian Radio is like solving a a, a a jigsaw puzzle. That's the best way I can put it. You kind of have to put all the pieces down and kind of figure out what fits, and then you kind of work out the fillers. And then you try to get everything to sort of kind of fit <clears throat> at, at their normal start times, but that could be just a bit on the frustrating side. And never decide, it never quite happens the way it should. So anyway, that's the reason why. So if you, if you uh, have it, if you, in fact... You know, a, a good way to listen to pirate Christian radio, just put it on in the background. You know, you know, it, you, if you uh, have internet access at work or something like that, or if you have a smartphone, uh, you know, just put it on and, and just listen to the programming day. We got eight hours of original program programming on a daily basis here at Fighting for uh, not Fighting for the Faith, that pirate Christian radio. <sighs> getting old, getting old, getting old. You get the mouth running on auto, autopilot, and it's not connecting to the brain. The brain's going, stop, stop, I want to say this, and the mouth's going, no, I got my own thing to say. <laughs> anyway, <sighs> all right, <laughs> let's move along here. Postmodern Emergent Orchestra, free from the bonds of limiting ideas and propositional notes. Ah, yes, that's the sound of freedom right there, I'm telling you. <laughs> I'm so glad that thing cuts off so abruptly. Anyway... <laughs> Okay, so uh, back to uh, the uh, the story uh, that I have been alluding to but haven't quite gotten to. And uh, it, it, here's the deal. Uh, if you uh, subscribe to uh, the Museum of Idolatry's RSS feed, I, I'm aside from doing Pirate Christian Radio and Fighting for the Faith, 
I also am the curator of a website called the Museum of Idolatry. And in the Museum of Idolatry, I have collected over the past three, four years uh, the probably the world's largest collection of artifacts of apostasy. And uh, recently, um, one, uh, one, one of the things I've been featuring in the Museum of Idolatry is uh, what I call monkey see, monkey do Christianity. And monkey see, monkey do Christianity is... Oh look, the the world is doing that, and every and it's like the the latest craze in the culture. So Christians go, me too, me too. We can do that. We can we we can be cool just like that too. And we want we monkey. So it's monkey see, monkey do. And so it doesn't make great radio. But uh, one of the things I pointed out is is that um, there there's a growing number of uh, seeker driven and liberalized churches who are. Um, trying to create their own flash mobs. I'm mean, familiar with flash mobs. I mean, they're kind of like the big sensation on YouTube. You know, you got the, you know, the, you know, the 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 great ones on YouTube where you know the people dancing and it, it, you know, the the, the uh, Grand Central uh, uh, station, the train station there in New York City, and in places like that. And it's, there's some really good, interesting, compelling flash mobage. On uh, YouTube, and by the way, that is an official term, uh, flash mobbage. It, it, yeah, just look it up. I'm sure you'll find it somewhere. Anyway, um, so uh, there's been a there's been a rash of flash mobs, and I've been putting flash mob videos into the Museum of Idolatries, especially the ones that I consider to be like flash mob fails. I mean, it it just they don't have quite this the flash mob props that most flash mobs do, and uh, but so it doesn't make good radio. So I haven't been playing that, but. Um, then, 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 then I get the link to this thing and I, oh, wow. Anyway, there's a group out there called the 2030 Clergy Network. It, it looks like they're made up of um, uh, clergy people. Uh, that would be pastors and pastrixes um, uh, from the United Church of Christ. And, uh, they held, uh, rather than a flash mob, they held a flash Eucharist in a hotel lobby and uh, and then put it onto YouTube. And, oh my, oh my, the, the, the first word that comes to mind is blasphemy. That's the first word that comes to mind. In fact, that's about the only word that comes to mind. And this is the kind of stuff that, this is dangerous. This is dangerous, dangerous stuff because... Um, I, what you're going to hear is going to fly directly in the face of uh, what Scripture actually teaches. And uh, to give you kind of an example of what I'm talking about, if you have your Bible, flip on over to the uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And um, I want to read to you what God's Word says uh, regarding the Eucharist. That's another name. That's kind of a fancy name for the Lord's Supper. Um uh, so let me, let me, I'm going to read to you starting at verse, um, uh, well, let's see here, um, verse 17. Uh, so if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Let's just, let's kind of frame this with the word of God. Here we go. Yeah, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and, and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? So what shall I say to you? Uh, shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So here's the idea, is that uh, 
And when you read the the book of 1 Corinthians, the the church at Corinth, let's just say that methodologically and doctrinally, uh, they uh, <laughs> were doing their own thing. Uh, yeah, they were. In, in fact, you can think of the uh, the church at Corinth. You know, if you remember the old Sesame Street th- uh, song. One of these things is not like the other. One of these things is not the same. Yeah, no, things were, there were some pretty bizarre stuff, uh, things occurring there at the church in Corinth. Uh, um, you had folks here getting drunk on at, at communion. Um, that should tell you something about whether or not uh, grape juice or wine has been historically used in communion. Yeah, it's kind of obvious. Um, but, uh, so you know, you got that going on. You had a guy who was uh, a guy who was sleeping with his father's wife, so it's like his stepmom. And the, and and Paul describes the situation. Basically, says the people in the church of Corinth were actually proud of the situation when they should have been mourning and they should discipline the guy and put him out of the church. And so there's all kinds of I mean, you got the complete abuse of the uh, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, uh, in a way that, well, it's, it sounds a lot like what's going on in a lot of so-called charismatic and Pentecostal circles. And so Paul had to go through, walk through the uh, different gifts of the Spirit and set things in order and you know, basically say, listen, you know, this is not how this is done. And, and so, you know, in, in talking here about the Lord's Supper, you had people who, you know, they had turned this into a, some kind of a, like a mini party. And not only that, it was a party only for those who had enough money and the guys who were, who were poor and stuff like that, they were X'd out. And the folks who had the money, they were they were getting drunk. They were having so much wine that, you know, it turned into like a love feast. And uh, they were, you know, you know, hammered on the communion wine. Not a good thing. So he, so with that in mind, the Apostle Paul, uh, his corrective here is to put some structure around it. Okay, And so Paul here, after explaining the problem, he says, now listen, okay, <clears throat> verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Which kind of, in my mind, is I think that's kind of an argument in favor of like communion every Sunday. That's my personal uh, take on that, but the, here, here's the idea: you have communion every Sunday, and it's done correctly. Uh, every single Sunday, you're you're again being brought back to Christ and Him crucified for your sins. Uh, you know His His body broken, His blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. It's hard to lose sight of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for your sins when you have communion every single Sunday. Might be a good idea. Anyway. So, so that's what Paul does is, you know, so he gives the problem and he says, let me remind you again that I received this from the Lord. And he goes, walks through the, um, you know, the, the, you know, the words of institution. And then he comes to these conclusions. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of our Lord. Yikes. Okay, um, Okay. so the Apostle Paul here gives a pretty sharp warning, and this is not, this is not a slap on the wrist. This is a full-on punch to the face uh, as far as the rebuke here. 
whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and are ill, and some have even died. So it's a big deal, big deal, to take communion in an unworthy manner. So much so that the Apostle Paul told the, some of the, told the folks at Corinth that because they were doing this, some of them were ill and had even died. Now, we'll save it for a different program as to what it means to uh, eat and drink in an unworthy manner. The text itself actually says it. If you, if you can't figure it out from the grammar, um, you know, well, you might want to you know, spend a little bit more time working it out. But the text itself actually defines what it means to eat, the, you know, eat this in an unworthy manner. But that's for a different program. Look at the text and you go, well, it can't mean that. Well, that, the thing you think it can't mean, that's the thing that it means. Anyway, so um, that frames then what's going on here, okay? You eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ in an unworthy manner is a bad thing. And there are folks who have been severely punished by Christ himself for doing that. With that in mind, uh, let's uh, take a listen now to the 2030 Clergy uh, Network's Flash Eucharist that occurred in a hotel lobby recently. Now, you can't see this. If you want to see it, you go to uh, a little11.com. That's the Museum of Idolatry, a little11.com. Currently, at the time of this broadcast, it is the top exhibit in the Museum of Idolatry, and it's named Flash Eucharist, question mark, question mark. And so what, what's happening here is they have a table set out in the middle of this hotel lobby, and uh, they've got a couple loaves of bread. It looks like a marble rye there and a, a jug, a, you know, a, a jug of grape juice. And uh, one of the things you'll notice immediately is is that um, there's a whole bunch of female liberal pastrixes in this um, flash mob, uh, this flash Eucharist. singing prepare ye the way of the lord and now two uh, female pastrixes have uh, stood up on chairs next to the table and they're going to be making an announcement Or transgender, come. Whether you are happy or sad, you are welcome. 
them here. Yeah. Um, boy, that's a problem. Um, so let me see. You guys are going to, quote, celebrate the Eucharist. You're going to ha- enjoy the, quote, Lord's Supper with um, people who are unrepentant practicing homosexuals. You're going to have the Lord's Supper with unrepentant women who are claiming to be pastors in the Church of Jesus Christ when the Bible absolutely says there's no such thing and forbids it. Now, do you think that this qualifies in some way or another as eating the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner? So there's a woman presiding there at the Words of Institution. Interesting words. This is the cup of the new covenant. Poured out for you and for many. Uh, That would be for the forgiveness of sins. I don't know if liberals actually believe in sin. Oh, of course. They believe in institutional sins. Yeah, sorry. And so now they have guys and gals coming up and participating in... This flash Eucharist that occurred in a hotel lobby. Yeah, so uh, um, let me just words of warning here. Um, If you are in a hotel lobby or, you know, out at the local mall, if you decide to go to Walmart or whatever, and a bunch of uh, liberal UCC pastrixes show up and set up a table with a a loaf of bread and some grape juice, um, uh, claiming to be uh, bringing a flash Eucharist to you, may I strongly advise you, in light of what God's Word clearly um, says, to flee the building. Um, Yeah, you may just want to leave. Um, and and do so in a quick manner. I understand that uh, you know. Um, I I understand you may want to you know, see if you can get through the uh, checkout line quickly. But uh, the idea here is is what's going on here. This is utter blasphemy. This is flat out blasphemy. This is a this is a mockery of the Lord's Supper. And I think at the heart of this, that what we're seeing here is a, is a flat out taking the Lord's Supper in an un worthy manner and it's not this isn't holy this isn't the lord's supper this is something that could kill you just saying all right uh we are up on our first break i'm running a little long here today um if you'd like to uh email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any uh previous editions of fighting for the faith you can do so my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter, my name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> 
Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Welcome to Build-A-God. How can I help you? Hello. I received a Build-A-God certificate for my birthday, so I'm here to build my own deity. Oh, this has got to be so exciting for you. Oh, it really is. Okay, let's get started. The first thing we have to do is determine whether your god is male, female, or unisex. Men are pigs anyway. She has to be female. Great choice. Now we have to select some of the attributes of your goddess. What do you provide? Do you want her to be kind, loving, compassionate, just, angry, righteous, wrathful? The goddess I believe in would only be loving and kind. Perfect. Now, is there any kind of sin that needs tending to by your goddess? Sin? You know, things like lying, cheating, stealing, murder, homosexuality. Well, I definitely want my goddess to be gay-affirming, and sin itself just feels so negative. I'm a good person, and I think my goddess will think everyone else is too. Oh, wonderful. Your goddess is coming along beautifully. Now we have to get to the difficult questions. Does your goddess offer an afterlife? Yes, my goddess would let everyone go to heaven. Except for Hitler, Genghis Khan, and good-for-nothing ex-boyfriend. Oh, excellent, excellent! Now for the final step, you have to name your goddess. Hmm... I think I'm going to name her Jesus. Oh, wonderful! That's what everyone names their god. Chris Roseborough here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says, Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. Right, we're back. Warning, uh, female pastrixes um, are not a real entity. No, God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus Christ himself has not authorized women to be pastors. It's in the Bible. Look it up. 
Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. Uh, you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. And when you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith on a monthly basis. So it happens month after month after month after month. And, of course, if you would like to uh, specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can make a one-time contribution by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. By the way, uh, before we get started, I didn't tell you, uh, what sermon we're going to be reviewing in hour number two? We're going to be going back up to the crossing, uh, the crossing church in uh, in Elk Lake, Minnesota. I think that's the town that it's in, and uh, we're going to be uh, listening to a sermon entitled "Animal Planet." Don't be a donkey. That's the name of the sermon we're going to be reviewing in hour number two today. So, by the way, since I went so long in that first segment, uh, we're not going to get through everything that I hope to get through today on Fighting for the Faith. So I, we, some of the stuff I wanted to get to today, we're going to have to get to tomorrow. Uh, that being the case, uh, I think it's important that we move on to the next segment. And the next segment, uh, well, uh, it ha- yeah, that's, it, it, things overheard at the, uh, at the um, 2011 Wild Goose Festival, you know. It really should have been called this, you know, that that's what it really should have been called. Not this, but this. Anyway, um, and so what I'm going to be doing is playing for you a, a segment from the lecture given by Phyllis Tickle. Uh, Phyllis Tickle is kind of uh, the um, female s- uh, senator of the uh, emergent church movement. And uh, she's she's one of the darlings of the folks in the emergent church. And uh, boy, oh boy, does she say some very interesting things. And now that we know that uh, the emergent church is really just liberalism rehashed in a postmodern way, um, you know, I, I think it's good to kind of go back and review some of the things, the major themes of the things spoken over the years by folks in the emergent church. And Phyllis Tickle, she's pretty much got about one stump speech. Uh, that's... I've heard her speak at three different emergent events, and um, each of the events that I've heard her speak at where where I was actually in the audience, uh, she says the same things uh, pretty much every single time just at different events. So if you hear uh, Phyllis Tickle in uh, the Twin Cities speaking about emergence, she's saying this. If you hear her speaking in Washington, D.C., well, this is what she's saying. If you heard her speak at the... uh, uh, the Wild Goose uh, Festival, yeah. Then, um, then the chances are that you've heard her say this. Yeah, so listen carefully. And uh, what's funny is, is that as I was preparing for the program, I, my my uh, my youngest daughter, Faith, um, who's fourteen, going on forty. Um, yeah, uh, my youngest daughter, Faith, overheard uh, part of Phyllis Tickle's um, lecture, and she immediately asked, "What does this have to do with Christianity?" <laughs> And I thought, yeah, smart girl. Anyway, so uh, yeah, I'm glad she's going on 40. But anyway, uh, so here is uh, Phyllis Tickle, the the matron uh, female senator from the Emergent Church, and uh, her talking about the 500 year um, uh, fire sale that occurs uh, apparently in Christianity, and and how Christianity is has to change. Here, listen in. And it was very clear even in 1992 and 93 that what was happening was Reformation again. 
and the first, so far as I know, prominent scholar and a watcher of, of things religion, uh, religious to even make that notation was a man named Walter Rauschenbusch. Got to point out, it's a little tough to hear her because the audio quality ain't so good. So you might want to listen a little carefully, or you know, you know, put something, you know, put the, put your earbuds in your ear, or you know, go to a room where you can listen just a little bit more carefully because uh, the audio wasn't so great. But you got to hear what she says. Uh, in 1907, who wrote a book called Christianity and the Coming Social Crisis of the 21st Century? Now she's quoting Rauschenbusch. What does that tell you? And the first 40 pages of that book are reformation over and over again. He does it R-E hyphen locates formation, but he's talking reformation. By the time you get to 1967 and 68 and 69, you get the Roman Catholic Church in this country as it prepares the material that it's going to use in catechesis for those who are, are considering becoming Roman Catholic. You will find in that material the beginning of a recognition that every 500 years, of the, the reference itself is volume 6 in the RIA material for 1969, published on June the 6th. See, I'm an academic. I like footnotes. I can give them to you. Uh, right there. And the title of the thing is Emerging Theology for Emerging Churches. Just as there are several books by that title. Anyway, the beginning there of the idea, the understanding, and apparently for the first time, that there is a cycle in, in what we do as westernized Christians. Okay, now she's trying to make the point that, you know, even the Catholic Church, and in, in their, in their books that they use to help prepare priests for catechesis and catechizing, you know, people into Roman Catholicism, that they've come up with this theory, there's a thesis out there that every 500 years, uh, something radically changes in Christianity. Listen in a little bit more before I comment uh, officially that every 500 years, for some reason, and I am not a systems theorist, there is a complicated and sophisticated form of science called system theory. And systems theorists will rise up, and if one of you is one, please don't rise up. I've been interrupted several times already, and I will never understand what you say, so don't bother, all right? But, but I am bright enough to understand that, yes, there's a reason for the 500 years, uh, and it apparently just keeps repeating itself. What the argument is, what the thesis is, is that every 500 years, those parts of the world that receive their Christianity through the Latin language, this is complicated, only complicated thing I want to say, that receive their Christianity through the Latin language, as opposed to the Greek language and as opposed to the Syriac language. Christianity came out of Judaism in three languages. Those of us who received our Christianity through the Latin language or were colonized by those who received their, their Christianity through the Latin language, or were colonialized by those who received their Christianity through the Latin language, which is a fancy way of coming close to saying the Western world or the first world if you want to. It's a little more nuanced, and the nuances are important. But whatever the nuances, every 500 years, we go through some kind of great quirky. Uh I don't know about... Okay, now, I know it's hard to understand her, but let me kind of summarize here. She's basically making the claim that every uh, Christian who's been um, uh, taught Christianity via the Latin language or some Latinized language or colonized by, uh, you know, whatever, uh, that every 500 years there's a big – she calls it a big whoopee. 
Okay, um, you know, in in years past, she's referred to it as a, a bake sale, not a bake sale, but a garage sale. We we get rid of all of our old junk and buy some new junk. Uh, that's kind of how she puts it. So apparently, there's this big cycle that goes on in Christianity. That especially if you've been influenced by Latinized Christianity, every 500 years is a big upheaval. Okay. Better name for it. You can call it a tsunami. You can call it a rummage sale. You can call it whatever you want to, but it's a big whoopee. Uh, and 500 years ago, we went through one and we called it the Great Reformation. Remember that one? So apparently 500 years ago, the Great Reformation, well, that was all just part of the normal pattern of every 500 years of there being this big cataclysmic thing. Now, uh, um, hmm. Have you figured out what's missing here at this point? Um, now, as you listen to the rest of the segment, I want you to focus on the fact that she's not quoting a single passage of Scripture, not one single passage of Scripture. And also, there's something else that's kind of missing here, a primary assumption. Okay, let me give you the primary assumption. Here's the deal. Um there's a reason why the Reformation took place and why there was a call for Reformation. In, in, one could make the argument that what the Reformers were basically doing were shaving off all of the foreign elements that got stuck into Christianity as uh, Roman Catholicism drifted from God's Word and the true biblical gospel and the true Christian faith and started importing in bizarre and weird and foreign ideas and baptizing them and, ma and adding them to, uh, to uh, Christianity. For instance, prayer to the saints. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation and, and the re-sacrifice of Christ in the Mass. Uh, the idea of uh, pen uh, of indulgences uh, and uh, things of that nature, and you know, and what happened is, is that Roman Catholicism, uh, as it drifted from God's word, as God's word remained locked up in Latin, and as the world changed from basically being primarily Latin speaking to being, well, to having other languages, you know, German and and English and, and French and others, uh, the, the, the Bible stayed locked up in Latin, and because people were not hearing it, and people were not reading it, and people were not studying it, um, all kinds of weird superstitions got brought in, you know, in, you know including prayers to Mary and, and, uh, and uh, all this bizarre kind of stuff. You know, you got Roman Catholic monastic mysticism, and Roman Catholicism, for the most part, became one big works-based religion with uh, with the Pope, you know, sitting at the top of it. That's not historic Christianity. And so when you read the Reformers, what they did was they basically said, let's go back to what the Scriptures say. And when they got back to the Scriptures, they realized the Scriptures clearly teach that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone. And when the Reformers went back to see if this is what the church taught in antiquity, uh, you know, the, the, you're talking about the, you know, the Antonician church fathers and, you know, would do some patristics work, wouldn't you know it, they found that the ancient church also confessed salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, by Christ's work alone, and the ancient church did not have the Bishop of Rome being the Pope, and the ancient church did not did not uh, have these bizarre doctrines about praying to saints and, and indulgences and all this kind of stuff. And so they realized, okay, all of this stuff is false doctrine. 
it's not true, but true Christianity is this thing that they that they tried to reform the church and restore the gospel to its primary significance and the, and the, and go back to orthodox christianity that was the idea and I'm, I'm not talking about orthodoxy as an eastern orthodoxy i'm talking about orthodoxy as an historic christian or catholic with a small c uh, christianity the idea was is that there is a faith that is once delivered to the saints, and what Catholicism had allowed in as the Bible took a back seat, uh, you know, in in, in their tradition, uh, what what uh, what you know what Christianity is, that isn't what it was, what it had become in Roman Catholicism. There was a lot of false doctrine, false teaching, false piety, false works, man made stuff, and all of that had to go. So that true Christianity could, and the and the proclamation of the biblical gospel could again shine uh, forth into the world, into into the into the darkness of our world, without all of this other mythology. That's the idea. And he, here's the deal: that's the, that's was what that's what went on at the Reformation. So it has nothing to do with a 500 year cycle. It has to do with the fact that you know God was gracious and kind to restore the gospel to its preeminent uh, spot and uh, and the proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins and that we are not saved by our works in full or in part, but that salvation is a complete gift given to us by God. Now, let me point something else out for you too, okay? Two passages of Scripture really quick. Um, you know, and, uh, you know, the, the, the ideas here, I, I'm not trying to teach these out of context, but these are two verses that talk about similar ideas. And let me, and let me demonstrate. Uh, the uh, epistle of Jude, verse 1, I'll, the, the primary verse I want to get to is, uh, is verse 3, but I want to read this in context. Uh, the epistle of Jude, starting in verse 1, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, even though he was a brother of Jesus, is also, also he's a half-brother, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Notice it says, once and for all delivered to to the saints, okay? For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read the uh, epistle of Jude, it's pretty clear that Jude, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, makes it clear that Christianity, the Christian faith, was once for all delivered to the saints. Christianity doesn't change, and it can't change, because it's something that was given to us by God himself. We don't have the ability or the authority to change Christianity, because Christianity isn't ours to change, okay? Let me give you another example. Matthew chapter 28 um, I'll start at verse 16. Now, the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus said, and came and said to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Okay, now, 
Are we at the end of the age yet? Well, we're closer. We're closer to the end of the age than the apostles were, but the, this age has not ended. Okay, now I want to point something out. Jesus commanded that, you know, and this is a commandment to the apostles and really the commission of the church itself to make disciples of all nations. Okay, now, <laughs> all nations means all nations, regardless of custom. So in, in the ancient world, the the culture of, of ancient India was much different than the culture of uh, the ancient Roman Empire or the first century Roman Empire. Two completely different cultures, one Eastern, the other Western in their mindset. Um, but yeah, Jesus doesn't say... Um, uh, you need to change the the message when you go to a nation that has a culture that you're not familiar with. Jesus assumes that everything that he taught is universally applicable to everybody in every nation until the end of the age occurs, and it doesn't matter culturally what the differences are, whether it's 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 Eastern Japanese culture, whether it's the culture of Tibet, whether it's the cult, culture of Soviet atheist Russia, the culture of uh, Nazi Germany, the culture of uh, of twenty uh, 20th century industrial revolution, uh, Great Britain and the United States. It doesn't matter. Jesus has instructed the church, and notice. What Jesus, the, the the fundamental idea here is, is that what Jesus has told the church to proclaim universally applies to everybody in every nation, regardless of culture, regardless of technology, regardless of anything, because the message is universally applicable to everybody, because it addresses man's fundamental flaw and problem, and that is that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins and at war with God as a result of our sinful nature, which we inherited from our ancestors going all the way back to Adam and Eve, and that the solution that uh, for this problem has been given to us as a gift by what Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. That applies to everybody of every age, whether the person shaves or not, whether they use an iPad or they uh, they, they they cut down trees with a stone axe. It doesn't matter. This is a a message that applies to every gar- everybody, regardless of culture, regardless of technology, regardless of whether they drive to work, take a bicycle to work, whether they're an environmentalist or they're a rabid capitalist. It doesn't matter. This message applies to everybody, regardless of culture or subculture. And Jesus here is basically saying that this is what the church is to be doing, and he's going to be with us as we do this, even until the end of the age, the message doesn't change. So this is a great cross-reference to Jude uh, verse 3, the faith once delivered to the saints. The, you know, and the idea here is the message once delivered to the church to proclaim, period. It doesn't change regardless of nation, doesn't re- change regardless of the of the current date on the calendar, because... This is to be proclaimed until Jesus returns, which will then mark the end of the age. This is what Scripture teaches. But this isn't what Phyllis Tickle is saying. Phyllis Tickle is trying to basically make some kind of an argument that the world and the church goes through these major upheavals and these big changes. And the, and and when that happens, well, the church needs to do something as well. But listen to her say it rather than me. And a thousand years ago, we went through one called the Great Schism. Remember that one? Faintly, not quite as well. 
1,500 years ago, we went through one called the Great Decline and Fall. That one we remember because we had to graduate from high school, and they made a big deal about the fall of Rome and everything that happened. And 2,000 years ago, we went through one now being called the Great Transformation. And had that one not happened, we would not be here. Now, she's calling the Great Transformation. Uh, 2,000 years ago, that would be the change from Christianity, uh, from Christianity out of Judaism. Notice that Jesus is missing here. That is the time at which Judaism gave rise to Christianity, or Christianity came out of Judaism, whatever you want to do with it. Every 500 years, we go through one of these things. The first thing you need to notice is that everything in the culture changes. Remember when they were... Now, so her point is, is that another, the first thing you got to remember is everything in the culture changes. So... Teaching the Reformation in high school, they said the Reformation, it saw the rise of the nation state. It was the rise of the middle class. It brought humanism. Uh, and it also brought capitalism. And by the way, it gave us Protestantism. Right? We as Christians tend to think Reformation, Protestantism, forget it. Not true. Everything shifts. We are going right now as a culture, and so is all of the rest of the world that was colonized or colonialized by, by Latinized Christianity. We are going through, a, a, an across the board, everything has changed. For whether we like it or not, over half of us no longer live a man, his wife, and their children. A hundred years ago, there were only 8,000 cars in the United States. There are 8,000 cars in the parking lot out there. A hundred years ago, only four million of us lived in cities. Now, 84% of us live in cities. That is to say, 84% of us are severed away from grandma. Thank God. No, we're severed. The village is no longer there offering us conservatory insulation and transmission of the faith. We now we have five times more words in the English language than Shakespeare had. Now, again, notice uh, this is just a litany of all of the major changes that have occurred in the last 100 years. And I, I don't have a beef with her about the changes. That was, she's correctly describing the fact that the world has dramatically changed. The modern world has changed everything. The landscape is different. But the uh, Christian message doesn't need to change. The reason why is because the Christian message that we've been given applies to everybody regardless of the current social, economic, geopolitical uh, you know, makeup of the landscape. It doesn't matter because... The message of Christianity applies to everybody, regardless of whether you are a capitalist, whether you live in a city, whether you live in a village, whether you drive a car, whether you ride a bicycle, whether you work in a factory, whether you work at home, whether whether you are a husband or whether you are a wife, whether you are a child or whether you are a grandparent. It doesn't matter. What The, the message that we've been given to proclaim is the faith once delivered to the saints, and it applies to everybody, everywhere, in every nation, regardless of culture, technology, where they live, whether they own an iPod, iPad, uh, cell phone, or, or whatever. It doesn't matter. Had when he wrote his play, which means what? It means we have five times as many things to name and to have to deal with and to understand. And for what it's worth, every ten months and five days, 
technological information in the Western world doubles, which means, among other things, there are no more experts. There can't be experts. Nobody can be expert in that kind of rapidly growing factual field. So you have to go by committee. Like it or not, Wikipedia is more accurate than Britannica. And that's a fact. I have a footnote. I can prove it. It is actually 7%, 7% more accurate. Why? Because there is no hierarchy to it. There is no down like this. It's everybody. And I think it's nerds mostly, but that's okay. <laughs> Who would care whether that sentence is right or wrong in the third paragraph or the most obtuse entry into, you know, whatever. Um, she needs to go have some children or something. I don't know, whatever. But that's the great emergence, and that's a small part of it. It's also the great emergence that a little tiny country can hold the largest one in the country and the wealthiest hostage in every way. It's the great emergence that most of you in this room will have held, by the time of your death, at least five different positions. I'm not talking about promotion. You will have followed five different professions or lines of work. It's all of those things and many, many more. They're the great emergence. And so it's giving us all this. And by the way, it's giving us emergence Christianity. Okay, now she's talking about apparently there's the great emergence of this of this new world that we live in that's still emerging, um, and now she's basically making the claim that uh, this thing has given us what she calls emergence Christianity. There's no such thing as emergence Christianity. There is Christianity, and then there's everything else. There's false forms of there's there's false religions that try to pass themselves off as counterfeit Christianities, or they try to pass their counterfeit Christianities trying to pass themselves as off as the true Christianity. But it's not. There's no such thing as emergence Christianity. There is Christianity. Period. And that's why we're here. In the same way that Protestantism 500 years ago named a conversation, and it recognized that a great shift had happened in the world. And that Christianity had to accommodate to that change, had to speak. Okay, did you see what she did? She just retold the story of the Reformation, that there was a great shift in the world and that Christianity had to accommodate to that change. That is not what happened at the Reformation at all. Christianity accommodating to a great change in the world, not on your life. Speak to people in this entirely different, dramatically different uh, environment in which they were living that things over the last 150 years had changed abruptly, that there was an abyss between 1570 and 1390 when the Perry Reformation began, when it actually started. In the same way, there is an abyss between us right now and 1842 when the Perry emergence began. And so we are, we are in this thing, and we are entirely different from what our great-grandparents were, and we're not going back. And the church has to accommodate so I don't know if you heard it, but let me let me make make her point. What she just said is that there's been this big shift, you know, from you know 1842 uh, at the time when this thing called the para emergence uh, took place, and the world has radically changed, and now Christianity needs to change to accommodate it. That's what she's saying, and I'm basically saying, nope, there's n that's not true. In fact, Jesus himself told us to do something. Until the end of the age, period. And he told us to proclaim, you know, make disciples, baptizing people, proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins in his name to all nations until the end of the age. Christianity doesn't need to budge a bit. Regardless of the cultural shifting 
Christianity stands as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Every time we've gone through one of these things, a new form of Christianity has emerged. Yeah, she's saying every time we've gone through these 500-year changes, a new form of Christianity has emerged. That is a complete historical revisionist uh, argument. And it doesn't understand what the Reformation was about, and it doesn't even historically understand correctly what the Great Schism was about. So uh, let's hear that again. And we are entirely different from what our great-grandparents were, and we're not going back. And the church has to accommodate. Every time we've gone through one of these things, a new form of Christianity has emerged. So there you go. Things overheard at the... yeah, the, uh, the the Wild Goose Festival, which really should be renamed that. But anyway, um, so no, um, I'm sorry, um, I I completely disagree with you because I I believe Jesus was right. Um, Jesus made it clear that we're to make disciples of all nations, every single nation. Didn't say come up with your own form of Christianity to preach to the Japanese or to preach to. Uh, the Russians, or to preach to the people in South Africa, or to pe- uh, preach to capitalist Americans. Nope. We have been given the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And w- the Great Schism was about heresy. The Reformation was about heresy. That's what they were about. And going back to and getting, you know, going back to what God's Word says and cutting out the heretical teaching from that it was within the visible church and cutting it off so that people wouldn't be taught falsehoods but be taught the truth. And uh, Phyllis Tickle's flat out wrong. Christianity doesn't need to change, and we don't need a new kind of Christianity because anybody who's peddling a new kind of Christianity actually isn't peddling Christianity. They're peddling a counterfeit, false religion, an idol, an, an idol god that they've created, and you know, trying to make him look like uh, the god of the Bible. In other words, uh, the emergent folks have been to the build a god shop, and the god that they believe in is the god of their own making, not the god of the Bible. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask me my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Chris Roseboro here to talk about this month's perk for those of you who are members of the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio crew. Have you ever been to Walt Disney World or Disneyland and taken a VIP tour of one of those parks? Well, if so, then you know just how valuable those tours can be in pointing you to things that you had never even noticed before. Well, this month's resource, Dr. Paul Kretzman's popular commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, is like a VIP walkthrough tour of the Gospel of Matthew itself. 
It's fascinating, in-depth, written on a lay level, and it'll help you to achieve a much deeper appreciation and understanding of this vital, vital biblical book. Now, if you would like to get a copy of this, this is only available for our crew members. So the way you join our crew is visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. Click on the one that says Join Our Crew. You're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And once you fill that out, we will send you an email giving you instructions on how to download this wonderful book. So head on over to fightingforthefaith.com, join our crew today, and thank you for your support. All right, we're back. Hour number two, Fighting for the Faith, sermon review time. Yeah, I don't even know how to categorize this one. As far as I'm concerned, this guy has no business being a pastor. Does not know how to handle God's word, which is one of the qualifications for a pastor, by the way. Here at Fighting for the Faith, we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's uh, sermon comes to us via the crossing in Elk River, Minnesota. A guy by the name of Eric Dykstra presiding. I don't think he has the right to be called a pastor. Scripture makes it clear that uh, a pastor is one who studies and shows himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment but rightly handles the word of truth. Uh, this sermon demonstrates that uh, Eric Dykstra has not met the first primary and core competency requirement for pastors, that they rightly handle God's word. name of the sermon, by the way, is Animal Planet. Don't be a donkey. Yes, you'll need your tinfoil pyramid hat. Probably a motorcycle helmet, knee pads, um, electrical tape, uh, some uh, a pair of wire cutters, I think, for this sermon, too. Anyway, let me, uh, let's just kill the music. Let's get right to it. Uh, anyway, here is, oh, that relevant sermon topic, Animal Planet, don't be a donkey. Here we go. Okay, so when I was a kid and I was staying at my grandparents' house and I couldn't sleep, I used to crawl in bed with my grandfather. And he would, in the middle of the night, he'd sing. This is Eric Dykstra, the uh, the guy who's uh, posing as a pastor there. Sing me what is known as the donkey song. I don't know if he made it up or where it came from or whatever, but he would sing me the donkey song and I would laugh and it'd be hilarious. Just want to let you know the donkey song is not found in the Bible. Hilarious, and then eventually I'd fall asleep. So, long story short, when I had kids... I decided they needed to know the donkey song as well. And so I've been singing the song to my kids for years. This is the donkey song. It goes like this. Sweetly sings the donkey when he gets his hay. If you do not feed him, this is what he'll say. (laughs) 
And that is the donkey song. What's up, Crossing <laughs> Church? Welcome to the third week of our Animal Planet series. Tonight, I, I, I just I titled this talk, Don't Be a Donkey. Turn the person next to you and go, hee-haw. Now look at them and say, don't be such a donkey. <laughs> Seriously, so many people are such donkeys. Hey, my name is Pastor Eric. Yeah, that's Code Talk. If you think that sounds like it's, he's you know, trying to use a euphemism, he is. If you've never been to our church before, um, th- this is how we do church all the time. It really is for real. I need to do a special shout-out to Big Lake and Princeton and Zimmer that are watching us on campus. Can we say hello to those guys? What on earth, what exactly makes it church that they're doing there? Hi, guys. Thanks for joining us on camera. We are going to have a good time tonight. Here's what I'm going to do tonight. We, we, we've talked, like, just so you know, each week, the goal of this series is to tell you something about an animal and then related to Jesus. So for the first week, we talked about the elephant in the church. Second week, we talked to you about the camel filter. And then uh, this week, we, we, I want to talk to you about don't be a donkey. And see, like, we have to make sure that we're, we, we use only certain words in church. And so don't be a donkey. But you get the concept, right? Everybody say yes. I get the concept. Okay, good. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to talk to you about two famous donkeys tonight. All weekend long, actually, I'm going to talk to you about two famous donkeys. You know these donkeys well. And then I'm going to return at the end of the talk to my grandfather's donkey song that he taught me when I was a kid, that I taught my kids, and I'm going to make you sing it eventually. Uh, and it, it'll be fun. Actually, you should sing it right now. Like, like here's it goes. Sweetly sings the donkey when he gets his hay. If you do not feed him, this is what he'll say. Hey, now tickle the person next to you. <laughs> okay, that's really inappropriate. Don't do that. Is this a church or am I watching a, a, a bad uh, bit on Comedy Central? What is this? This is what he'll say. Hee-haw. Hey, now tickle the person next to you. <laughs> okay, that's really inappropriate. Don't do that. <laughs> that will, like, that, that would just be, just don't do that. That's probably not a smart move. Anyway, here's what my, my hope and prayer is this weekend. As I, I'm going to talk to you about three different donkeys with three different scripture passages. And if you would understand these scripture passages, you would better understand Christ and you better under, hopefully understand your life and you get some life change. Can we do that, church? Okay, cool. Okay, did you catch that? You're going gonna, gonna to better understand life and hopefully get some life change. Huh. Is that really why uh, Christianity, uh, you know, with the message of Christianity, is that what it promises? Life change? At least in the here and the now? Notice he's, he's talking about life change in a temporal sense. And I think that's kind of code talk for is you can you'll find out biblical principles that you can apply to your life that will make it better. Yeah. And uh, that's kind of problematic because the reality is, is that somebody who believes and trusts in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins could find themselves persecuted and even martyred for the Christian faith. Christianity does not promise uh, basically life change in the sense that. Uh, we can, if if you apply particular principles, God will bless you with particular results uh, that are uh, beneficial and 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 much coveted uh, within the suburbanite America. Yeah, that basically means you are earning your salvation and you are earning your blessings. Uh, the Christian faith teaches that uh, Christ died for our sins and we are to believe and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins and having been set free from sin, death, and the devil by Christ's death on the cross, 
we are then to love God and love our neighbors. This is what our new nature does. And uh, we wrestle with our sinful nature, and we struggle with it until the day we stop breathing or in the day until Christ returns, the end of the age. But the idea here is, is that uh, somehow Christianity has been re- reduced to, at least in these guys' opinion, uh, you, know, it, you know, something that you do so that you can experience life change. Hmm. Three passages instead of one. I know it's crazy. You can do it. It'll be awesome. Um, three passages of scripture, pen, piece of paper, take some notes. Um, and then uh, let me pray. And we'll talk about uh, not becoming donkeys. Jesus, thank you so much for what you're about ready to do on this campus and in all of our other campuses. God, I just bless you. I thank you so much that we get to serve you. I thank you for the privilege of standing on this stage. I thank you for the, the crowds that have shown up that they don't want to hear Pastor Eric. They want to hear you, Jesus. And so I just ask that you would speak life over every soul. You speak life over every marriage. Now, if people showed up to hear Jesus and not Eric, um, then don't you think that Eric should spend the majority of his time reading uh, the words of Jesus found in the gospel text? I mean, it just seems kind of obvious. I mean, if he's praying and acknowledging in his prayer that people have come not to hear Eric, but to hear Jesus, then don't you think he has a responsibility to preach the words of Jesus? It makes logical sense to me. They don't want to hear Pastor Eric. They want to hear you, Jesus. And so I just ask that you would speak life over every soul. You'd speak life over every marriage. That you'd speak life over every every person that's living discouraged and down. That you'd speak joy over their hearts. And so when they walk out of here, they walk out of here with the peace of Christ, the joy of Christ, the love of Christ, the mercy of Christ. God, I thank you that you're God and, you're, and I am not. And so I just give you the stage and I ask you to speak to me now. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, everybody said, amen. All right, first donkey I want to talk to you about is this donkey right here. You're familiar with this one. Everybody say, hi, Eeyore. How many, how, many, how many of you love Winnie the Pooh? Can I see your hands? If you don't like Winnie the Pooh, there's something wrong with you. Winnie the Pooh is the greatest cartoon ever. Seriously, I, Winnie the Pooh is my very, very, very favorite cartoon. July 15th, the new Winnie the Pooh movie comes out. I'm going. Seriously, I am going to see Winnie the Pooh on July 15th. It's going to be awesome. I love Winnie. But there's, sorry, I'm just being honest in church. Got to be honest in church. Now, in saying that, there's another character in Winnie the Pooh, that's kind of not so cool. You know what I'm saying? Eeyore's, Eeyore's kind of a donkey downer. I mean, he's just, a don- he's just a donkey downer. He's always down and discouraged and depressed. Just to make sure you understand who Eeyore is, you need to watch this. And now... um. Winnie the Pooh, huh? Don't be an Eeyore. Yeah, apparently the Bible teaches this. I'm not sure where the Bible teaches that we're not to be Eeyores, but let's... Uh... Yeah, you're getting colder. You're getting Looks like fun. Wish I could have some. Hey, buddy Burrow. What you doing outside? Don't want to ruin everyone's good time. That's ridiculous. Eeyore, the party's for you. What's a pin the tail on a donkey party uh, uh, without a donkey? No, parties are for popular animals like tigers. <laughs> Do you know people like this? Do you know Eeyore-type people? You know the ones that are always 
down, discouraged, depressed. I mean, they could get they could get a ten thousand dollar raise from their boss, and they go home and be like, "Yeah, man, now we're gonna be in a higher tax bracket. <laughs> people are gonna ask us for money. It's gonna suck." And I can't believe we get, I, I know people like this, man. They're always just discouraged. They're all, Am I hearing, I'm not hearing Jesus. I, uh, 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 Eric, you, in your prayer, you said that people showed up to hear Jesus. Why aren't you preaching him? Everything's not going to work out. It's always going to suck. Everything's always going to be bad. It's all, they're just Eeyores. They're donkeys. They're discouraged. They're down. They're depressed. Now, here's what I want to tell you. That is not God's heart for your life. Can I just tell you that? God was, God's heart was never for anyone in this room to walk around discouraged and depressed. I mean, think about it. God, God's a good dad, right? God's a da- God's dad. He's, he's called the Heavenly Father. God's a good dad. Think about it. Now, apparently, now we're, we're going to preach uh, from his deductive logic rather than from the Bible. Okay. A dad for a second. Does the dad, uh, like, in, in your life go, man, I really hope my kids are miserable. You know what? I just really hope my kids are always discouraged, always depressed. They never succeed, and it always sucks for them. Do we ever think this way as, as fathers? No, man. We have high hopes for our children. We want them to succeed. We want to see them do positive things. We walk, we walk in hopes that they will have joy. Your heavenly father is the same way. I want to put up uh, uh, the first thing I want you to know uh, about donkeys. God's heart for you is that you would walk in joy, not as Eeyore. God's heart... Okay, do you have a biblical passage that says God's heart for me is that I walk in joy and not be an Eeyore? God's heart for you is that you would walk in joy, not as Eeyore. God's heart for you is that you would walk in joy, never like Eeyore. I want you to turn in your Bibles to, 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 the, to the book of Nehemiah. Go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, you'll notice, okay, this... This is kind of this is um this is a bad way of doing things. Why? Because he's not actually teaching through a biblical text. He's just made an assertion about God. Okay? God's heart for you is that you live in joy and not be an Eeyore. Okay? Kind of a law kind of sounding thing, isn't it? But he made this assertion first and didn't read it out of a passage. So now he's made the assertion, and so he's got to quick find a passage that makes it look like this so that uh, so that he can support this assertion that he's made. He didn't dig this assertion out of a text that he's been preaching from in context. Instead, he's just made the assertion, and now he's proof-texting it. Quick, find a verse to support it. Let's see if the passage that he's uh, going to quote here actually says that God's heart for you is that you live in joy and not be an Eeyore. Nehemiah chapter, it's the first, first of three passages you're going to look up. That's, on, that's found on page 293. You can find it. I know you can. 293. I just want you to understand how much God's heart for you is that you would be happy, joy-filled, rejoice in the Lord. This, this is God's concept for your life. This is Nehemiah chapter 8. We're going to look at verse 10. We're just going to look at verse 10. Like, I want you to look at the second half of the verse. Okay, now, wait a second here. You're going to read Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Isn't there a whole lot going on here in the book of Nehemiah that would be relevant for us to know? 
so that we can properly understand the context of this verse? Kind of odd. I mean, Nehemiah is is historical narrative. Nehemiah is historical narrative. That's the, the kind of genre that it is. There's a story going on here. There's a historical event occurring here in chapter 8. Don't you think we ought to know that historical event so that we could properly understand this verse, verse 10? I mean, keep in mind, the chapter headings, the chapter numbers, and uh, the verse numbers are not part of the inspired text. These are an apparatus that were put into the biblical text later, much, 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 like millennia later. And this is a recent addition to the Bible to help us quickly find passages. This is this you know, the the idea here is is that we're not supposed to blow the Bible apart into all these tiny tiny little verses. This was never meant to be read this way. Why is it, Pastor, that you are going to Nehemiah? and finding a sentence taken out of a story in order to prove the point that God's heart for us is that he doesn't want us to be an Eeyore, a donkey, the donkey Eeyore. Kind of weird what you're doing here. doesn't make any sense. No sound biblical teacher teaches the Bible this way. I just got tattooed backwards. But here's the verse. It says this. Don't be dejected and sad. For the joy of the Lord is your what? Joy of the Lord is your what? Strength. Does it say that anger is strength? No, no, notice what, what he's doing here is he's trying to make it look like he's engaging in exegesis. He's not. He's, this is flat out eisegesis. I'll show you in a second. How, how about discouragement is strength? Does it say that? What is the strength according to this verse? Come on, talk to me. Joy is, man. God's heart is that you would never live a, 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 a discouraged, dejected, sad life. Hmm. Is that what that verse means? Is that God would never want us to live a dejected or sad life? Is that what is really being taught here in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10? And by the way, he did not quote the whole verse. He quoted the very, very, very last part of verse 10. He didn't even quote the whole passage, didn't even quote the whole verse. We, we've got a third of a verse here. It's literally, that's content-wise, it's only one-third of a verse. So would you like to know what's going on in Nehemiah chapter 8? Well, let's take a look, okay? If you have your Bible, open up to Nehemiah chapter 8, verse one. Now, I want to give a little bit of a historical context here, okay? What has happened up to this point in the history of Israel? Israel has gone through a series of cataclysmic disasters, okay? The reason for these disasters specifically was the fact that Israel had rebelled against God and the covenant, okay? The covenant, the Mosaic covenant, given uh, to the uh, the children of Israel at Mount Sinai. And so they, rather than worshiping and serving the one true God, 
instead engaged in idolatry and worshipped Baal, worshipped Ashtoreth, worshipped Molech, and all of the false gods of the of, of the Amalekites, the uh, the Moabites, uh, you know, the Hittites, and all of their false deities, the Phoenicians, the the Philistines, and uh, as a result of this. God enacted the judgment clauses of the covenant, and he punished Israel, and he sent, God sent Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, to Jerusalem, and he sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the majority of the population, and took the the remnant that survived into captivity in Babylon. There they were for 70 years. And then God, as he had promised through the prophet Jeremiah, released the children of Israel, and they were able to go back to Jerusalem. And when they got back there, Jerusalem was in ruins and had remained in ruins the entire 70 years. The wall had not had been torn down and was never rebuilt. Uh, the, the temple lay it was just in shambles and in ruins. And so this this is this is where it picks up. This the story picks up. And so part of what they needed to do was to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and uh, and that was met with persecution and with suspicion. And they needed to rebuild the temple. I mean, the, all of this stuff is what's going on. That's the historical context of what's going on here in the book of Nehemiah. So in chapter 8, we have a very interesting thing taking place. And that is, is that in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we have an incident where the people of, uh, of Israel, the remnant, gather in Jerusalem in the square before the water gate in order to hear the, uh, the, uh, the scribe Ezra read the law of Moses. So they're here, they're there gathered in public as, a, as the community to hear the law of Moses. So let's read this chapter. Now all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of all the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood uh, Mattathia, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, uh, Maasiah, and on his right, Pediah, Mishael, uh, Malkijah, Hashum, Hashbadana, uh, yeah, I messed that one up, Zechariah, and Meshulam on the, on the left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of the people, for he was above all the people, and as he opened it, all the people stood. You want to know where liturgically the idea of standing before the Lord, you know, when the word of the Lord is being proclaimed comes from? <clears throat> and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Beshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, uh, Shabbatai, Hod- Hodiah, Maasiah, 
Keleta, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peleliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so the people understood the reading. So this is what's going on here. And you'll notice here, the job of the preaching was to proclaim the word, and there were people there to help the people understand clearly what God's law was saying and what it commanded. Okay, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Okay, so why do you think they were weeping when they heard the words of the law? These are people who had just come out of captivity in Babylon. They, coming home to Israel, had seen the destruction and the waste And all of that was a punishment from God for their idolatry and rebellion against the Lord, for their despising of him and his word and turning their back on God. And God, in his love, had sent prophet after prophet after prophet, calling his children to repentance of their idolatry, and even saying, if you return, I will forgive you, God had said to them. And they would not listen, and they persisted in their idolatry, persisted in the rebellion, persisted in their unbelief, and God finally punished them, and it was severe. And so here the people in Israel at the time of Nehemiah are hearing the word of the law proclaimed and taught clearly. If they have questions, their questions are being answered so that they understand the proper sense of the word of God. And as they're hearing it, they are weeping. Their sins are exposed. Their own rebellion against God has been exposed. They now understand why they've went through what they've went through, and what they've gone through is horrible. We're talking about entire families being destroyed. uh, There probably wasn't a family in all of Israel where they hadn't lost sons and daughters and mothers and fathers. Every family had been affected by this. And all of it was clearly a punishment from God. And so as they are reading it, Nehemiah, Ezra, the Levites who taught the people, they all said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing Ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the verse. That's the sentence that he took out of context. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Was God God chastising the people for being Eeyores and going about life being despondent? No. 
These were words of encouragement. These were words of encouragement to a people who were mourning, who should be mourning, who were grieved, who should have been grieved, who were sorrowful because of the fact that their stubborn and rebellious hearts of their loved ones, of their people, had persisted in idolatry and that God had punished them and the punishment was severe and they heard the word of the law and they understood and they grieved and they're comforted now. Do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people saying, Be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So their rejoicing was over the fact that they understood the words that were declared to them. They understood what the joy of the Lord meant because they had heard God's word properly proclaimed and taught and then cleared up and so they could understood it. That's really the goal of preaching and teaching. But so ironic that um, Eric here um, in this sermon about don't be a donkey is absolutely misquoting God's word from this particular passage. It's ironic, and it exposes the fact that he is not qualified to be a pastor. He has no business opening God's word and putting on the pretense and show as if he's actually teaching it. He's not. Because if he were truly teaching God's word, he, like Ezra, would be proclaiming it to the people and having helpers so that people could understand it and understand the true sense of the word of God that is being declared to them. But he's not giving them the true sense. He's not really preaching God's word. He's ripping a verse out of context here, a verse out of context there, in order to give his entertaining and relevant life transformational quote seminar so that people can experience life change, but he's not really teaching God's word. He's mangling it to his own shame, by the way. Joy is meant. God's heart is that you would never live a, 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 a discouraged, dejected, sad life, which is kind of pathetic. You know what I'm saying? No, Eric, what's pathetic is that you are not handling God's word correctly, and you're not even really teaching it. And you're making stuff up and attributing it to God. That's blasphemy. That's sad. I mean, it's, even to think about somebody being sad, you look at Eeyore's character, and he's like, yeah, I had a party, and it sucked. That just makes other people sad thinking about the dude who's sad. That's never God's heart for you. God wants you to walk in confidence, in joy, and in, in the peace that the future is going to be awesome. He wants you to rejoice. This text doesn't say that to walk in confidence and joy and in, in the peace that the future is going to be awesome he wants you to rejoice always now some of you are going what what, what? i just want you to focus on, the, on three words i want you to circle them. i want you to circle the words joy of the lord circle those for a second just circle those in your bible Whoosh. circle them in the bible Whoosh. god just we're going to scribble all over our bible tonight it's going to be awesome graffiti and scripture joy of the lord now what does that mean that means joy comes from who the Lord. So um, where is joy found? The Lord, which would make God a happy God, right? Really, this is your deductive logic skills at, at work. So, uh, so that means God's a happy God. Oh, brother. Okay, please give us some details about this happy God that you think that you know about. The happy God. God didn't create the world and go, 
well, I should have tried harder. And I made that tree over there, and uh, it's sort of all right. No, I mean, if you read Genesis chapter 1, every time he cries, somebody goes, that's sweet. That was awesome. <laughs> and then he goes, oh, that was sweet too. Every time he says over and over and over again, he says, that's good. That's good. That's good. That's good. Why? Because God's a happy God. God is consistently a God of joy. I'll give you a secondary verse about this. This is, this is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It says this. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the next word? Joy, peace, patience. In other words, this. The secondary characteristic of God besides love that God wants you to know about is the fact that dude's happy. Your heavenly dad is a happy God. He is joyful. He's excited. He's always like, woo, future's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. I mean, that's how he's thinking. Hmm. What about these verses? For instance, um, John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. How about Romans chapter 1, verse 18? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who in their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Or Romans 2, 5, because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Hmm. You going to talk about that particular attribute of God? Awesome! It's going to be great! I mean, that's how he's thinking. He's a God of joy, which leads me to a really important statement. Probably, I think, the best statement in this whole talk, and if you're ever going to Twitter something, this is the thing to Twitter. This is my Twitter moment <laughs> from this talk. This is, this is the statement right here. I'm going to put it up on the screen. So I hope you write this down. If- this guy is not a pastor. He is an obnoxious joke. If you're not walking in the joy of Jesus, you're walking in the discouragement of the devil. Oh, brother. Really? You got a verse that says that? Write that down. If you're not walking in the joy of Jesus, you are walking in the discouragement of the devil. And I know I just freaked a bunch of you out. He said devil. Look, he believes in the devil. Yes, I do. Devil, devil, devil. He freaked me. Come on, give, give him some more details. What's the devil do? What's he all about? So just chill out for a second. I just want to say, like, if God exists and God is good and joy-filled, right? Then something opposed to God might also exist. And that being in Scripture is called the devil. I actually believe he does exist. He's a real being, not with, like, pitchfork and, like, and painted red. But the real dude who's got one goal, to jack up your life. He's thinking, if God wants you to walk in joy, I want... It kind of falls short, don't you think? The goal of Satan is to just jack up my life. Right. Yeah, that's that's what the devil... Man, I think it's a little deeper than that, don't you? But the real dude who's got one goal, to jack up your life. He's thinking, if God wants you to walk in joy, I want to make sure you walk in suckage. That's his goal all the time, that you would walk in suckage. Now, here's a thought, okay? Does he need to make your life a country song for you to walk in suckage? No. He doesn't have to do big, horrible, nasty stuff to you. All he has to do is get you to think any little thing is so, so bad, and your life is jacked. All he has to do is get you to stop walking in the joy of Jesus and get you to walk in discouragement, and when you walk in discouragement, you're ruined. Any little thing can throw you off, can depress you, can wreck you, can, it can, can screw you up. So here's, let me give you a thought for this, okay? Here's, here's my example, okay? 
Um, uh, imagine some of you that like to like you really like uh, fishing. Yeah, who likes fishing? Come on, put your hands up. All our campuses. Yeah, I love to fish. Me too. Um, so I, I'm gonna go fishing today, and I get out. I don't have a truck, but I wish I had a truck. And I'm gonna get out and, and, and try, try to start up my truck, and my truck won't start. Stupid truck. I have one of two reactions. I have reaction A and reaction B. Reaction A, when my truck won't start and I now can't go fishing, is this always happens. It always happens. It always happens to me. I can't, my life sucks. I, like, I never get to go fishing. And like, boom, you can immediately whoo, spiral downhill, right? And Satan just jacked you in the head. And all it was was a truck that didn't start. Or in that situation, you go, well, guess God didn't want me to go fishing today. I guess there's something cooler going to go on at the house. I, I'm going to go in the house, and when, I, when the truck gets fixed, I'll go fishing later. But for now, I'm just going to hang out in the house. Maybe I'm going to hang out with my family more. Maybe God's got, got something better for me down here. But in that moment, you always have a choice whenever any little thing occurs. And if you choose discouragement, the result is discouragement. Yeah, this is pop psychology. This is not Christian doctrine. You choose, you know what? Eh. It's all good. I'm a walk in joy anyway, and the result takes you someplace good. Does that make sense? See, in any and every situation, you have a moment where you can choose. I said this at last year. Last year I did a series called, uh, um, called Joyride. I said this. In every moment of your life, you can either drink pickle juice or something else. It is always your choice in any situation you face. You can go, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. Or you can be like, I am down in the pickle juice, baby. Here we go. Yeah, we're not hearing, we're not actually hearing biblical preaching here. We're hearing the obnoxious claims of a, of, you know, a Comedy Central washout who, uh, who really is enjoying the limelight and the stage and is just making stuff up and blaming it on God. My life sucks. This is going to help. How did that help? Think about it. How did it help to down the It didn't help at all. In fact, sorry, uh, biblical Christianity, it, it, it's not about having a bad attitude when life is giving you suckage or pickle juice. No, it's, a, it's about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And the Bible addresses real sins. What you're preaching here isn't really a sin at all. You're just making stuff up, some kind of light version of something that sort of sounds Christianish. Think about it. Don't you want to see good things happen in your future? Can good things occur if you're discouraged, down, and depressed? No, you're going to walk in. Where does it say good things can't occur to you if you're discouraged, down, or depressed? It doesn't say that. This isn't biblical teaching. Instead of towards good things, you're going to walk away from them. You get where you put your head many times. I'll give you a verse about it. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 15 says this. For the despondent, each day brings what? So in other words, even if you get a raise, raise, but you're discouraged, yeah, it's still going to be really hard and sucky. Even if somebody does something good for you, you're going to see five reasons why it's still a really bad, troubled day. On the other hand, look at the, look at the opposite, though. For the happy heart, for the happy heart, life is a continual feast. But today I'm only eating ramen noodles. Sweet! I get to eat ramen! <laughs> See, the only thing, so you think that your life is determined by your circumstances. <laughs> your life is determined by your mental ability to handle your circumstances. And your ability to choose joy in any and every situation 
I'm not going to be Eeyore. I'm not going to walk around down and discouraged and depressed. Instead, I'm going to walk in the, in the confidence that God's got a good future for me. I'm going to rejoice in the Lord always. Is this making sense to you? Now, I'm going to be really honest because we're supposed to be honest in church. And so this is Pastor Eric's honest moment. I suck at this. <laughs> Seriously. I was last year. I, I, I taught the joyride series. and I was awesome for like a month, for like two months, for like three months. But then I forgot my own series. Ever do that? Like, like here, a good talk at church. Yeah, you can do it after like, like 20 minutes. I get that. <laughs> I get the fact that you don't remember my talk tomorrow. It's okay. I'm not offended. I don't remember it sometimes either. <laughs> okay? Let's just be honest. I try, but I forget too. So, but with, when it comes to joy, if you're not constantly remembering that joy is your strength, you're going to go back to torpedoing your own destiny. See, uh, No, it's not joy. It's the joy of the Lord. That's the joy that comes from salvation, from forgiveness of our sins by a merciful God. See, every moment of your life, you can choose the joy of Jesus or you can choose the discouragement of the devil. And many times I have walked the wrong direction. And here's what happens. When I walk the wrong direction, now I'm in a fight. I'm like, ah, how am I going to get out of this? Because I'm spiraling out of control. I'm, and I can feel my life being flushed. Ever felt that? And it's going down. It's going down. I'm going down. Okay, anyway, I can't say that. Uh, I'm going down. And here's what I do. Um, this, is, this is my solution. If it works, you can use it for you. This is my solution for killing Eeyore. Literally. You know what? Oh, by the way, I just said this. Do you know why Eeyore is always down and discouraged? He has a pin in his butt. <laughs> You'd be discouraged too if you had a pin sucked to your butt all the time. I got a pin in my butt. I can't be happy. I got a pin in my butt. <laughs> that would mess you up. You know what I'm saying? So you walk around discouraged, okay? How, how do you kill off Eeyore in your life? How do you get the pin to go through the butt up to his face? Wham! So that Eeyore dies. We just killed off a Winnie the Pooh character. It's awesome in church. <laughs> Children are now traumatized. Ah, they killed. Yes. Okay. Uh, I don't even think this is worthy of a response. This is so obviously false and bad and banal on its face. I mean, this is just foolishness. This is not reverential preaching and teaching of God's word, especially the kind that we saw in Nehemiah chapter 8 when we read it in context. This is the opposite of that. This is an abomination. To this, prayer and gratitude are the keys to you killing off Eeyore. Prayer and gratitude are the keys to you killing off Eeyore and continually... Walking in a state of joy. I'm going to talk about both the prayer part and the gratitude part. I want you to say prayer. Now say gratitude. Here's the, here's the part first I want you to catch. If you're going to walk in joy, you've got to be a person of prayer, meaning this. You've got to recognize when you're walking in the discouragement of the devil. So in my head, here's what I do. Holy Spirit, um, I have recognized. Notice it's not recognizing that you've sinned against God's law. No, no, no. It's. This is recognizing when uh, you are experiencing discouragement and you're being an Eeyore, which the Bible doesn't actually teach about at all. Here's the, here's the part first I want you to catch. If you're going to walk in joy, you've got to be a person of prayer, meaning this. You've got to recognize when you're walking in the discouragement of the devil. So in my head, here's what I do. Holy Spirit, um, 
I have recognized the fact that I'm getting all depressed, I'm getting all discouraged, I'm getting all down. So here's what I'm asking you to do. Every time I start to feel down and discouraged and depressed, I want you to convict me of it immediately. See, what happens is you're spiral out of control and your mind goes someplace dumb for like an hour and a half. You're like, yeah, and all of a sudden you're like, ooh, that's bad. And so you have to, you have, I asked the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I believe in you. Can you please convict me of being depressed the second I, I start to feel it so I can deal with it? And then I pray. And here's what I pray. In the powerful name of Jesus Christ, who bought me with his blood, I bind the spirits of discouragement for me in all levels and in all dimension, and I send it away in the powerful name. Bind the spirits of discouragement. <sighs> Lord, Holy Spirit, convict me of discouragement. The Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and unbelief, not discouragement. I'm going to be victorious, that my, my, my best is yet to come, that this is not going to be my worst moment, but my best moment, because Christ conquered everything at the cross. So as long as I am with Christ at the cross, my future is guaranteed. False gospel, false application of the gospel. This is just, this is pop psychology affirmation posing as Christianity. We flesh Eeyore. Daddy went, ugh, Eeyore just died in my life. You have to kill off the spirits of discouragement. And literally, I just pray it off. I have a prayer that I pray in the powerful name of Christ, who bought me with, I bind the spirit of discouragement for me, or the spirit of depression, or, 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 or the spirit of despair. In all levels, all dimensions, I believe you, Jesus, that you have a good plan for me, that my future is guaranteed, and I'm going to walk confidently in that truth. See, Jesus said the truth will set you free. So the first thing you have to do is you have to deal with, with your mental state of being, which is really the discouragement of the devil. Say it what it is. I know that sounds weird to some of you. Like, yeah, look, really believe that. Again, this has been a, obviously influenced by 12-step programming and pop psychology and therapy. This is not biblical Christianity. And when Jesus said the truth will set you free, he was not talking about you first and foremost admitting that you have a problem so that you can then take the steps necessary to overcome and manage your addiction have to do is you have to deal with with your mental state of being which is really the discouragement of the devil say it what it is i know that sounds weird to some of you like yeah look really believe that's a, I, I really believe that's spiritually negative because I, I don't wrestle against people i wrestle against principalities and powers and rulers of this dark world the ephesians says i don't wrestle against flesh and blood so when i'm in that state the solution is prayer you pray it gone now there's a secondary part to this though you can't just pray discouragement gone and not replace it with something else. Because if you don't replace it with something else, where's discouragement coming back? To your empty head. Because <laughs> I, I prayed it out. It's going to be awesome. Five minutes later, it just comes running back. Hi, I'm back. Crap, why'd you get back here? So you've got to keep it gone. How do you keep discouragement gone? Gratitude. This is the secondary part. You've got... First of all, prayer, secondary, gratitude. For me, this means this. When I'm starting to feel discouraged or depressed or despairing, I go, I do, I, after I pray it out, I do this. I follow it up with this. God, I'm just going to remind myself of how awesome you've been to me in the past, and I'm going to thank you. So I'm going to pray through the alphabet. I do. I pray through the alphabet. A. A is for the fact that... Who's he preaching about right now? Uh, himself. Crossing church and changed so many lives, and I thank you that I've been a, a part of the ringside seats of getting to watch all that lifetimes. Thank you so much. You were awesome. B, man, 
You, you bought me with your blood, man. You, you died for a dude like me. I, I, I cannot believe that you would sacrifice yourself. Thank you so much that you gave your life for me and you bought me with your blood. See- okay, notice uh, that's, a, that's a smidge of a gospel thing here, but it's really not a main point. It's just he's giving an example of how he prays. I thank you for the cross. I thank you for the, the, that the cross has freed me from sin and Satan and death and that I have a good future and I will be victorious. I will not be a victim. I will be victorious. D, I will, man. I, I will not be a victim. I will be victorious. Misapplication of the cross here. This is not the biblical gospel. I believe that he was behind me, that he is ahead of me. I'm going to walk confidently in my future because he's already in front of me. He's prepared the way. I'm moving that direction. And what happens? Gratitude. It's not so hard. You just have to decide. I'm not drinking pickle juice. You know, circumstances in your life are going to suck. They just are. You can't control circumstances or people. The only thing you can control is your own mental state. If you're jacked in the head, you did it to yourself. You allowed the discouragement of the devil to ruin your ability to succeed. Yeah, can we talk about the fact that humans are born dead in trespasses and sins and in need of a savior? You got I mean, it's serious. This isn't biblical teaching. This isn't biblical doctrine. This is pop psychology masquerading as Christianity. It to yourself. You allowed the discouragement of the devil to ruin your ability to succeed. On the other hand, when you boom, I just shot a your sweet <laughs> i just shot at you i'm not gonna be a donkey i'm not gonna get all down i'm gonna walk confidently into my future and it happens through prayer and gratitude does that make sense look at the person next to you again and say don't be a donkey don't be a donkey say eeyore sucks <laughs> winnie the pooh is awesome though <laughs> There's your first donkey. I want to talk to you about a secondary donkey. Is this good so far? Okay, cool. Um, I have a secondary donkey I want to talk to you about. Um, and this one, he doesn't have a name. He's just known as donkey. <laughs> donkey. <laughs> it's Shrek. Take a look. Yes, I was talking to you. Can I just tell you that you was... And now we get a movie clip from Shrek. Then you showed up and bam, they was tripping over themselves like babes in the woods. See that? That that really made me feel good to see that. Man, you almost burned the hair out my nose. Just like the time. And then I ate some rotten berries. Man, I had some strong gases eking out of my butt that day. <laughs> How many of you like Shrek? Come on, put your hands up. All campuses. So we got a Shrek soundbite where Sh- uh, the donkey talks about gases leaking out of his butt. Is this appropriate for church? I mean, seriously. I mean, this sounds to me like the kind of idolatry that led to Israel being taken captive in Babylon. And then I ate some rotten berries. Man, I had some strong gases eking out of my butt that day. <laughs> How many of you like Shrek? Come on, put your hands up. All campuses. Everybody, if you don't like Shrek, there's something wrong with you. Shrek is hilarious, man. That is really, really good stuff. But his annoying companion, Donkey... What is the biggest problem with Donkey? He talks too much. Dude never, ever shuts the heck up. 
I mean, he speaks constantly. He's never, ever quiet. And this is the secondary donkey I want to talk to you about. I already talked to you about Eeyore and not walking in despair. Secondarily, I want to talk to you about donkey. And don't be a donkey by talking too much. And I just got to tell you, man, in our culture. Mm -hmm. I wonder why this pastor doesn't take his own advice. Don't they? I want you to go to a Bible passage with me. Go to Proverbs chapter 10. Proverbs chapter 10. This is uh, page 381. 381. I want you to get that. I want you to look this up because I want you to just circle some stuff and scribble some stuff in our Bible and graffiti some places. Like people, if they were in the last service, maybe they already got some stuff scribbled in. But we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 10, page 381. And I want you to read with me verse 19. I want you to read it out loud when you find it. I'm going to read it out loud with me. Here we go. It's gonna say, it says this. Too much talk. Come on, I want you to read it out loud with me. Come on. Too much talk leads to sin. Be sensible and keep your mouth shut. Is that a good verse? Yeah, see, let's apply this to this sermon. Mr. Dykstra. You are speaking a lot of your words, which is not what you're commanded to do by God's word. God's word tells his pastors to preach the word. You're not preaching the word. Three verses in this so-called sermon shows that you're not preaching God's word. Lots and lots of words, and what we're hearing from you is actually a sin and a transgression against God's commandments for pastors. You are sinning, sir. Maybe you need to zip it with your words and get to your job, and that's to preach the word of God. Sin. Why does, so, why, why does so much bad stuff happen in relationship? Yakety yak, don't talk back. You know what I'm saying? People talk way, way, way too much, and the result of too much talk, gossip, slander, backstabbing, broken relationships, anger, frustration. False doctrine, blasphemy taking God's name in vain, all of the things happening in this sermon. People just go, you know what? I'm just going to keep talking. I'm going to keep keep talking. And what Scripture says is you're better off many times just being like, I got nothing. And just keeping your mouth closed. See, wisdom is on the, I'm going to say this, wisdom is on the side of a closed mouth. Don't open up your mouth and remove all doubt that you're really foolish. Just many times. But by the way, this is really hard for me. My grandfather used to call me motor mouth. (laughs) I'm the dude that's... (laughs) My wife, she says, anything I'm ever thinking comes out my mouth. Like if if I'm thinking it, it's out my mouth. And she's always like, can you just shh? There's lots of times she's like, can can I talk? Because I just never shut up. Up. I get how hard it is to. <clears throat> Do you know how many times I have put my foot in my mouth in my life? Well, if this sermon is any indicator of what your regular life is like, um, I, it's just got to be some epic astronomical number. I am really good at eating the entire soul. <laughs> soul food right here is my own fault. <laughs> I am really, really good at this. And and by the way, not just me, but most of our world. Just listen to talk radio. In about five minutes, somebody's going to stick their foot in their mouth. 
Just watch the 24 hour news for a while. You know what I'm saying? In about five minutes, some pundit's going to say something, and somebody else is going to, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose, all because somebody just didn't go, just close your mouth. Which leads me to a secondary thought on God's heart for you. I'm just telling you three thoughts on God's heart. Here's my secondary thought on God's heart. God's heart for you is that you learn to speak less and listen more. Say, I should. I think it should begin with you right now in this sermon. Listen more. Say, I should speak less and listen more. Right. If you were speaking less, you'd actually be quiet with all of your opinions and your ideas and let God's word speak so that you would listen to it. Some of you did that really well because you didn't even say it. (laughs) So we'll try again. Say, I should speak less and listen more. James chapter 1 verse 19 says, dear brothers and sisters, dear brothers and sisters. Be quick to listen, slow to what? Slow to speak. Ancient rabbis had this saying that I, that I learned a long time ago back when I was in seminary, and, like, and I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. Say- really, you went to seminary to learn how to preach like this? Did you, did you actually take a, a class on how to preach a sermon? Did you pass it? And if you passed it, are you applying anything that you learned in that seminary? Slow to speak. Ancient rabbis had this saying that I, that I learned a long time ago back when I was in seminary, and, like, and I was like, that's the coolest thing ever. They used to say this. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. God expects us to listen twice as much as we speak. The result of that is less sin in our lives. You know, Jesus is a great example of this. Jesus is a really good example of, I'm just, got nothing. There was one day when he walked into Jerusalem and everybody was like, Woo, you're awesome and you're the bomb. And they were all like, like they were fans, man. They, like fans are fickle though, right? <laughs> one second a fan loves you and you're the best and you're the greatest. And the next second you suck. And then they tried to kill him. He went from, in one week, he went from being, they tried to crown him king. In one week, one at the beginning of the week, they tried to crown him king. At the end of the week, they killed him. One week. Fans are fickle. And so they arrested him, and then they started saying all kinds of slanderous things. They said, like, like, defend yourself, defend yourself, defend yourself. And he went, I got nothing. Here's what Scripture says about Christ, Isaiah chapter 53, 7 through 8. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. Okay, um, Jesus not defending himself during the, um, the joke of a trial that he went through is not an example of what it means to, you know, not speak a lot of words. That's not a proper application of that passage at all. In fact, if you want a really good explanation about, you know, know, a good exegetical, hermeneutically proper handling of God's word that involves exegesis of the passages where Jesus is on trial, the kangaroo court that he went through, and the fact that Jesus didn't speak to defend himself, This isn't Jesus trying to set an example. Okay, I want to let everybody know this is what it looks like to not speak too many words. That's not what was going on there. There's something better going on there. If you want a good explanation, get a copy of the book that we published called The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners. It's an e-book, and if you don't have a copy of it, 
Uh, the way to get it is uh, go to go to Amazon.com into the Kindle store and type in my name, Chris Roseboro, or type in the name of the book, The Sufferings of Jesus Christ for Sinners, and read those sermons on the Passion Passages of Jesus Christ, and when you'll get to a fantastic explanation as to why, why, why Jesus didn't open his mouth. It wasn't because Jesus was trying to set a good example. Think what you want. He was oppressed and treated hardly, yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. I'm going to tell you something, church. This is really important that you catch. To be Christ-like means to learn to shut up. This is one of the hardest things you'll ever learn. Because you want to say something, and you want to jump in, and you want to speak up, and you want to, and one of the hardest lessons you'll ever learn is Jesus wants you to be like Jesus. Huh. <laughs> and to be like Jesus means you got to learn to shut up. Well, then you're the farthest thing from Jesus I've ever heard. Be like Jesus. means you got to learn to shut up because when you speak too much all you do is stir stuff up and sin abounds where words are many does that make sense guys this is the honorable approach to life it's also not the american way <laughs> People don't understand it, but it is the Jesus way. Pastor Eric, man, how do I shoot Shrek's donkey? (laughs) You know, I I got how you shot Eeyore. That was awesome. But how do I shoot Shrek's donkey? How do I learn to talk less and listen more? And it's real simple. I'm going to put up a new art that many of you have probably never practiced. And I hope you try it. Practice the art of silence and solitude. Write that down. Oh, so now we're going to Roman Catholic monastic mystical practices. Great. Probably never practiced. And I hope you try it. Practice the art of silence and solitude. Write that down. You want to shoot Shrek's donkey? You got to practice the art of silence and solitude. You know what? Here's the thing. The only way you learn to shut up is to shut up. Which takes work. It takes practice. You gotta, just like, like you, you do what you practice. You've gotta learn to be quiet. Psalms chapter 4610 says, be still and know that I am God. Oh, learn to speak less so you actually hear God. So you can do what he says. Many of you go, how come I can never hear God and I can never do what he says? Shut up. (laughs) Maybe you'll hear him. Week. And just said, I'm going to, I didn't say the TV was bad and like it's evil. Throw your TVs out. We're like old school church. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm not saying TVs are evil. All I'm saying is what if you just turn it off for a week and said, this week, I just want to hear you, Jesus. For those of you that aren't Christian yet, if you exist, God, I'm shutting the TV off. You can talk. I'll listen. Scripture says to be still 
I know that. What if on your way to work for the next week, seven days, I didn't say forever, you just turned off all radio. If you like talk radio, turn talk radio off. Like, I'm an NPR guy. Turn NPR off. Because you're like, you like NPR? Yeah, I know. That's dumb. (laughs) I get it. Like, if you like music, turn music just one week. What if for one week? See, you are so connected to noise. By the way, that's our next series. Noise. You're so connected to noise that you can never hear God because God doesn't shout loud. He speaks very, very quietly. Scripture says in, in 1 Kings 19 that he, that he wanted to talk to Elijah, and a storm happened. And That passage does not say that if you want to hear God, God speaks really quietly. That is not what it says at all. The Bible actually doesn't teach it. Read it in context. Happened, and fire occurred, and an earthquake happened. And it says God wasn't in any of that stuff. He wasn't in the wind. He wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the fire. And it says after everything chilled out, and was silent, God spoke in a gentle whisper. The reason why we don't hear God and then we can't do what God says is because we're not listening. And the only way to listen... If you want to hear God, open up your Bible and read. If you want to hear God audibly, read God's Word, the Bible, out loud and you'll hear God. The reason why we don't hear God and then we can't do what God says is because we're not listening. No, it's because you're not reading the Bible. The only way to listen is to shut this up. Silence. You have to practice the art of silence and solitude. This is so important. Like, I, this is so important. I want you to catch this. We actually pay our staff members for two days of work a year, every staff member, to get alone with God on a 24 to 48-hour silent retreat. Way off by themselves, no people, no noise, no distractions. Just listen to God so you can do what he says. This last Monday and Tuesday, that's where I was. I, I, I left as soon as service was over on Sunday. I went Sunday till Tuesday morning, just silent retreat, just listening to God so I can, I can do what he says. This, this coming week, I'm spending three and a half days. Why on earth would God tell you in private what he has already told you in, in his word? God has commanded you to preach the word. You are already disobeying him. So why on earth do you think he's going to tell you something different when you're alone with him in solace and solitude? Solitude. Listening to God so I can do what he says. This is my, every year in the summer, I spend three to five days and I just go study what I'm going to speak to the church about the next year. And I, get, I try to get all of our sermon series ideas in my head in one week, and then I come back and present them to a team, and we kind of argue about them. It's awesome. But that's a different story. Um, but I, I present these, I get all these ideas, and the point is this. If I don't go get along with God, I won't be able to tell you what I think God wants you to know. You're like, because apparently you're incapable of reading the Bible and, you know, actually teaching from a biblical text. wants you to do if you don't get along with God. That requires... Silence. You need to shoot Shrek's donkey. Boom! Right in the face so his teeth fall out. (laughs) I'm just getting you to laugh a little. (laughs) My humor is disgusting, isn't it? (laughs) Yep, and I don't think it's funny at all. Here's my challenge. One week. Not forever. You turn the TV off. Or the radio off. Or take the iPod out of the ears one week. I dare you to try it and say, God, if you're legit, you speak to me. I'll do whatever you ask. Just talk to me. And God's really good 
when you pray that kind of prayer and you spend some time in silence, he responds. And Shrek's donkey falls over dead. Does that make sense? I dare you to try it. And then I will, uh, I'll talk to you about one more donkey. And to do that, I have to sing my donkey song again. Because <laughs> my grandpa taught it to me when I was like three, and I love it. I know that's a little weird, but I do. Sweetly sings the donkey when he gets his hay. Oh, man, this is some kind of a sick joke, right? Sweetly sings the donkey when he gets his hay. If you do not feed him, this is what he'll say. Okay, I won't do that anymore. You get the idea. <laughs> yeah, I get the idea, right? It's like you're making a donkey out of yourself. Okay, I won't do that anymore. You get the idea. <laughs> you, you, get, you get the concept. My grandfather taught me that song when I was, like I said, like I was like three. We used to go visit my grandfather in Wisconsin, and um, my parents would drop me off there, and it was a big old scary house, and it was dark at night. You know what I'm saying? That was just dark. And when you're a little kid and you're in a dark place and it's a little strange, or maybe there's a storm outside, it freaks you out. You know what I'm saying? And I can remember laying in bed and being a little bit freaked out, a little bit bothered, and all of a sudden, Grandpa! Grandpa! Hey, Grandpa! Yeah, I'm, I'm scared. It's too dark in here. Why don't you come to my room? So I'd get out of bed, and I'd down the hallway, and I'd, he didn't turn the lights on, so I had to feel my way around, and I'd jump in bed between Grandpa and Grandma and get down in all the covers. And then I'd get under all the covers, and I was still scared. So then he would start singing me this song. And he just, I mean, he just sang real sweetly and real light. And then he'd get to the end, and I added the tickle part. I don't think he ever really tickled me. <laughs> I just tortured my kids with that because it's fun. <laughs> But uh, I would laugh and laugh. And so then I'd say, sing it again, Grandpa, sing it again. So then he'd sing it again. And he'd sing it again. And eventually I just, you know, I fall asleep. And here's what I want you to know. If the other two donkey stories weren't even about you or for you, maybe this one is. See, I think your daddy's heart your daddy's heart is a daddy's heart. I think God's heart is a father's heart. That just, I want you to catch this thought. Who, ca that, who cares what you think? Actually, that's what the scriptures reveal. Oh, man. Again, Pastor, you seem to think that your job is to preach your stories and what you think and what your opinions are. And that's actually the farthest thing from the truth. I care less what you think about God. The question is, what has God revealed in his word? Scary, Daddy. Grandpa, what do I do? Say, hey, come down the hall. Get in bed with me. It's all good. I'll comfort you and bring you peace and rest. This is your heavenly daddy as well. I want you to understand his heart is when you're going, dad, I don't get it. It's scary. The world is crazy. What's going on? Why is this happening? I'm terrified. I'm worried. I'm freaking out. I don't get it. It bothers me. He's going, hey, just run down the hall. Why don't you get in bed with me? Let me sing a song. <sighs> 
I mean, <clears throat> this is aggravating. Why don't you get in bed with me? Let me sing a song over your soul. Let me comfort you just a little bit. Let me give you a little bit of peace. It's going to be okay. This is, I think, who God is. And I'll show it to you when we go to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. You're going to page 679. Romans 8. Romans 8. Great passage of scripture. Let's see if we steer into the gospel. I think if we do so, it may be an accident. And it may be completely undone because of what he's done already in the sermon that he ought not be doing. Chapter 8. You're going to page 679. Romans 8. It's page 679. It's the last passage I want you to look up. I want you to look it up because they're going to circle some stuff and you're going to scribble all over this passage too. It'll be awesome. Just scribble some stuff and write some things and then we'll, and then we'll be done. I want you to read Romans 8 on 679. Specifically, I want you to read verse 15. I just want you to read verse 15. It says this. So you have not received a spirit that makes you what? Fearful what? Fearful slaves. Instead, you have received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him, what do we call him? Abba what? Abba father. Yeah, that's great. Um, you're kind of picking up in the middle of the Apostle Paul's thoughts here. You want to explain how we're adopted? I, I hope you, you give us the details of repentance and the forgiveness of our sins. That would really be helpful at this point. Scribble in your Bible, man. Circle the words fearful slaves for a second. I want to say something really important. God's heart for you is never to be a slave of fear. What? A slave of fear. Uh, Jesus has set us free from slavery to sin, death, and the devil. What are you talking about? You're just inserting that into this text. And the only way you get that's even possible is because you've taken it so far out of context, you've lost the original meaning of what's going on in this passage. Ay, ay, ay. Again, uh, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Romans chapter 8. Let's spend a little bit of time in Romans chapter 8 because it 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 talks about what we're, you know, what, you know, this whole Abba Father thing. There's a context to it. Now, let me give you the flow of things here. In fact, let me uh, let me back up to Romans chapter 6. I'll skip over 7 and kind of pick up an 8. I'll, I'll, you know, you'll see what's going on here. Romans chapter 6. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Notice the slave language here. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. 
Now, I, he goes on to explain some more stuff, and then he talks about the struggle with the sinful flesh in Romans chapter 7. And you know, he says, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I do want to do, I don't do. Who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is the, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if we live according to the fl- if you live according to the flesh you will die but if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live for all who are led by the spirit of god are sons of god for if you d- for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry abba father the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So you see what's going on here. I mean, he's he's taken Romans 8.15, for if you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of as, as adoption of sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The fear that is being discussed here, fall back into fear, is the fear of punishment, the fear that goes with doubt and unbelief, the fear of, of, of the wrath of God. That's you know we have been set free not from generic the generic fears in life or from fear of monsters under our bed no we've been set free from the fear of the wrath of god we don't we don't shrink back uh from god in in, in worried that we're going to get a beating no we can approach him and and embrace him as abba father because of what christ has done for us on the cross that's the the fear that's being addressed in this passage and uh, pastor donkey here is just totally messing this up. You is never to be a slave of fear. Let me say that again. God's heart for you is that you would never be a slave of fear, walking around all worried and anxious and bothered. And so many people live their lives afraid. They live their lives afraid all the time. They're worried they're not going to have money to pay the bills. That's not the kind of fear that's being discussed here. They're worried they're going to lose their job. They're worried they're not going to get a raise. They're worried they're not going to get another job. That's not the kind of fear discussed in Romans 8.15. They're worried their car's going to break down. They're worried their kids aren't going to be successful. They're worried they're going to lose their house. So they spend their lives in anxiety and worry and fear. And this was never God's intention for every person. 
It was never God's intention for you to twist his word to make it say this because it doesn't say this when you read it in context. Spend their lives in anxiety and worry and fear. And this was never God's intention for every person. It was never his goal that you would live a life of afraid, fearful little mouse going, "Ah, what's going to happen next? (laughs) See, God's a father's heart. He's got your daddy's heart. His goal is, is that you would walk in confidence, free from anxiety and worry and fear. God's heart is that you would never be a slave to fear. I'll give you a verse, another verse of scripture about it. This is 2 Timothy 1, 7. It says, for God did not give us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. God's heart When you have God going on in your life, when you have the spirit of God going on in your life, man, you don't walk all timid and afraid and worried, man. You walk in power. Okay. He just took 2 Timothy 1.7 out of context as well. Again, this is not talking about any old generic fear here. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and of self-control." Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about the Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know him who I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until the day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Again, this is not talking about just any old generic kind of fear. This particular fear that the Apostle Paul has in mind here. And he's trying to encourage Timothy to boldly proclaim the gospel and not worry about, uh, not be fearful about the sufferings and beatings that go along with proclaiming this gospel. That's really what's going on here in in 2 Timothy chapter 1. But, you know, Pastor Donkey here, he just keeps taking verses out of context because, of course, it's not Jesus's God the Father heart for him to... uh, uh, yeah, have you walk around being afraid of the dark or whatever. That's not what these passages are about. Holy swagger, love and self-discipline. See, people that walk with the Spirit of God. Okay, we're going to have to put this back in context. Did he just say holy swagger? Oh, man. This, this sermon is getting more train wreckage by the minute. Hang on, hang on. Let's hear it in context a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. God's heart, when you have God going on in your life, when you have the spirit of God going on in your life, man, you don't walk all timid and afraid and worried, man. You walk in power. 
which is confidence. I would call it Godfidence. Uh, no, you wouldn't. You stole that from Ed Young Jr. Oh, great. He's completely plagiarizing Ed Young Jr. and making it his own. That That's just theft. Holy swagger. Love. Yeah, yeah the holy swagger. Again, you stole that from Ed Young Jr. And self-discipline. See, people that walk with the Spirit of God walk in confidence. They walk in love. They walk in self-discipline. Here's what I got to tell you, man. If you walk in confidence, you're going to freak everybody else around you out. Because they all live in fear. Because that most Christians, most people in general, they live their lives afraid. They're so worried and they're so anxious. So you're like, nah, it's all good. I got God. Man, everybody's like, ah, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? afraid? Holy swagger. Man, th- this is awful. Man, everybody's like, ah, what's wrong with him? What's wrong with him? afraid? Holy swagger. Godfidence. This is what sets Christians apart that are really spirit-led. They're not worried. Yeah, so they'll know we are Christians by our swagger. Yeah, that's how the old hymn goes, isn't it? They're not afraid. They're not fearful. They're walking in confidence, man. And this is what God wants. This is David versus Goliath. I can't find him. I can't. I'll find him. It's all good. You're only 17. No big deal. Bam. I killed him too. What's up? <laughs> Godfidence. This is so much different than how most people live their lives, but this is God's heart for your life. That you would walk in. And yet he didn't provide a single verse in context that says anything remotely even close to this. Arrogance is, I'm awesome. Godfidence is, God's awesome. Watch what he's going to do. See the difference? Big difference, but God wants you to walk in that kind of victory in your life. Never slaves of fear, anxiety, worry, stress. It's not going to work out. What's going to happen? So, Pastor Eric, man, how do I walk in Godfidence? How do I, how do, how do I, by the way, I'm going to do a series about this, I think. We're going to do a Godfidence series next year or a, a Holy Swagger series or some sort. Of, I'm, going to, I'm going to pick a, maybe a different word, but we're going to do some sort of series about this. Because this is where most people live their lives is in fear, worry, and stress. So, Pastor Eric, how do I stay out of that horrible place of fear? Coward- I mean, back in the day, I mean, didn't pastors talk about freedom from sin, death, and the devil? Now we just... Uh, uh, the big bane in life, just generic fear. Yeah. Oh, brother. This is where most people live their lives is in fear, worry, and stress. So, Pastor Eric, how do I stay out of that horrible place of fear, cowering in the dirt when Goliath walks up? How do I stay out of that place? How do I stand up? Goliath isn't going to walk up. Um, David killed Goliath. In case you haven't heard, Goliath has been dead for thousands of years. Uh, there is no chance in Hades that you're going to accidentally run into Goliath walking down your neighborhood streets, uh, and you're going to have to go and grab a bo- you know, some rocks and a sling in order to, you know, to knock him down. Goliath is dead. All of this has already happened. I'm going, nah, it's all going to be good. He answers the question, Romans chapter 8, verse 15, the same verse again. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own, ch- his own children. Now we call him, what's the next two words? Abba, Father, circle those. Circle the words Abba, 
father. And now I get to tell you something cool. You know, those are the most intimate words for a dad ever. They're not, oh, dear heavenly father, or thou great devoted heavenly guy in the sky. Huh. They are Abba father. Literally the word Abba is translated daddy. That when you pray, our father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy. No, you can be daddy, help. Notice he just mocked the Lord's prayer. Who, who was it that taught us to pray our father who art in heaven? Was it Satan or was it Jesus? You know, it's called the Lord's Prayer for a reason. So notice what he just did. He totally slapped down the Lord's Prayer. It's dark in here. It's scary. There's crazy stuff going on. I don't understand. This bothers me. This makes me worried and afraid. He's going, hey, just yell, Daddy. You can come to my bed. You can sleep next to me. I'll sing over your soul. It's going to be all right. Can I tell you something? I don't need someone to sing over my soul. I need a crucified and risen Savior. I need God's wrath to be propitiated by the blood of a sacrifice that is capable of taking away my sin. You got anything for that? It's going to be all right. Can I tell you something? There are only three children in the whole world that get to call me daddy. We have a very intimate relationship. They get to jump up on my lap if they want to. They can pick my nose. Hey, Daddy, what's going on? And pick my nose. You get on my lap and try to pick my nose, I will beat the snot out of you. (laughs) Because you're not my kid. You know what I'm saying? That would be weird. Trust me, I I would never even think of doing that. God God calls you calls you his child he is your heavenly daddy that's God doesn't call everybody his child. Only those who have been brought to repentance and the forgiveness of sins are the adopted children of God the Father. You got to be careful here. Same intimate experience between a father and son or son and daughter daughter and, and father. Same thing is what God wants with you and him. He wants an intimate experience where, where you get to crawl up on his lap and go, Daddy, this is scary. This is scary. He just puts his arms around you and he whispers in your ear, Hey. It's going to be okay. We're going to take the giant together. It's going to be awesome. No, we're not going to take the giant together. Christ killed the giant for us. It's called Satan. In fact, there's more than one giant mentioned in the scripture, sin, death, and the devil that that afflicts every one of us. And Christ has already defeated all of them for us. Hey, it's going to be okay. We're going to take the giant together. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be all right. I don't understand. It's okay. Let's go take the giant. And you walk into your destiny. And you're victorious. I walk into my destiny and I'm victorious. No, Jesus fulfilled his destiny as the promised Messiah, and he was victorious 
for me, and he calls me to repent of my sins and believe what he's done for me for the forgiveness of my sins so that I can spend eternity in life everlasting with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you get what I'm saying here? This is ridiculous. You're victorious. See, Christ at the cross destroyed victims and made everyone victorious. Bad theology of the cross here. This isn't even the biblical theology of the cross. We continue. The only victim of the cross was Satan. (laughs) Everybody else walked away from that encounter victorious. All you got to do is bow a knee, look up at heaven and say, God, I need that kind of victory in my life. I want you in my corner. This completely diminishes what Christ accomplished on the cross. So. Uh, Cue sappy music. So don't be so fearful. Get some confidence, man. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed or discouraged. I'm your God. I'm going to strengthen you and help you. I'm going to uphold you with my righteous right hand. One translation says my victorious right hand. I love that. Because that's my daddy God. When I say our father who art in heaven, I'm talking about that daddy. And he loves to say over my soul, I know you're terrified. Come sit with me. Your future is going to be bright. It's going to be all good. God doesn't promise that your temporal life is going to be all good. He'll promise to work all things for good for those who love the Lord. And that might mean suffering, pain, death, the affliction, you know, that's what the things that are promised for, for Christians, persecutions, maybe even martyrdom, you know. I'm talking about that daddy. And he loves to say over my soul, I know you're terrified. Come sit with me. Your future's going to be bright. It's going to be all good. three donkeys I don't think all three of those were for you I don't I don't know if uh, I would make the argument there was a fourth donkey in this sermon you were sitting in this room or other campuses because you needed me to talk about Eeyore I needed boom shoot Eeyore dead or maybe God was talking to you about Shrek's donkey and you gotta stop talking so much or maybe maybe you just need to be reminded that if you're a child of God, you get to go sit with the king of kings, man. You get to sit on the king's throne, on the king's lap, and he's going to whisper in your ear, it's going to be okay. But one of those th- Not much of a gospel there. It's going to be okay. Don't worry. You have a choice every moment of your life. You can watch the walk in the discouragement of the devil or the joy of Jesus. God's heart for you is to speak less and to listen more so there's less sin in our world. God's heart for you is when you are worried and anxious and stressed to just call out to your dad and let him bring you peace. Because then you're walking in confidence. 
I don't know which one was for you, but I know one of them is. So I just invite you to close your eyes. And- None of them were for me. Confidence. I don't know which one was for you, but I know one of them is. So I just invite you to close your eyes and bow your head for just a second. If God is real, and I believe he is, and he's sovereign, which means he knew you were going to be here at the service for this talk, to hear this message. And part of that was for you. I don't want you to pick all three. I want you to pick one. I'm not picking any of them. And go, God, I know you were speaking to me about this. Help me be a donkey no more. Yeah, I, I'm convinced that because you mangled God's word, completely twisted it, and engaged in just complete silliness and obfuscation, that we're not really dealing with the, the biblical God. So God wasn't speaking to me through this sermon. If, if God was saying anything to me, it's avoid this man at all cost. He's a wolf in sheep's clothing. And let him lead you someplace awesome. Jesus, I thank you so much for what you're doing at this church, for what you did in this room. And- done, done, done. This is this is a sick joke. This, I mean, that's what this is. This is just absolutely a sick joke that's being played on the church by Satan. You didn't hear God's word preached. This was a complete mockery of God's word and of the preaching office uh, that God himself, Jesus, set up in the church. This is a crime that you've heard committed. Pray for this guy. Pray for Eric that God would lead him to repentance and the forgiveness of his sins because this wasn't godly biblical preaching. This was just utter Tom foolishness nonsense. And he definitely did make a donkey of himself. Pray for him that God would restore him to, to, and to do what he's supposed to do as a pastor, proclaim the word. In season and out of season, sound word, preaching, all of it in context. Ugh. Anyway. <clears throat> so what do you think? You know, I, you know, I'd love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's our message. That's our good news. I'm going to go wash my brain now. Good night.